Now I'm just a country lawyer, see? He was like Prez Hilton. I don't plan on getting dressed. So, you know, stay tuned for our baby. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that feels like a Chicago bootlegger. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. My eyes have been opened. Well, uh, I'm sorry about all that cellulite then. <laughs> it's uh, it's beautiful. Aw, thanks, honey. Yeah. Uh, we do have actually a new country to Hooray. report this week. It is Bulgaria. So, Stravita, if I am figuring out how to say welcome in Bulgarian correctly. Yeah, it's uh, been an exciting week for our downloads this week. We've uh, we've shattered our records for downloads. Uh, it's very exciting to have all these new and returning cousins back with us. Yes, so if you're a new cousin, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. That's right. Have a scone. Yes, and uh, we do want to let our new cousins know how to get in touch with us. You can email us at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at 5 Maggie Smiths. that's the number 5, and uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on iTunes. Just look for Up Yours Downstairs, and we're pretty much it. Yeah, so. we're pretty much the only thing. I think the only other thing that comes up is like how to like deal with your downstairs neighbors if they're giving you some hassles or something. Right, which is something we could learn from, we could in learn fact, from. <laughs> but uh, that's not us. We're not going to get into it now. No. Now we will move on to telegrams from our cousins. First up, we have a telegram from Cousin Miranda. Dearest Cousins Kelly and Tom, while I've been enjoying nearly every minute of the hiatus podcast, I happen to love A Room with the View. <laughs> I am so glad to get back to Downton. I didn't realize how much I had missed the McGee voice until Kelly said luncheon. Anyway, I am glad that I'm not the only one who really likes Edith in Series 3. Baron Fellows must have decided that she was the best sister over the series hiatus. Now, I happen to be a big fan of Bates, though I still laugh at nearly every crack you make about him, but the prison scenes are just bad. <laughs> I was very curious about what would happen to the Swire money if the other heir was dead and Matthew turned the money down, so I asked my lawyer mother. For any who are interested, she said that the solicitor would go through the family trees of the heirs until they found someone else. In the unlikely event that Matthew was the only possible heir, the money would then go to the state. Cousin Miranda. P.S. According to my sister, you can find the Titanic cartoon through Pirate Bay. Hmm. Interesting. I think I will. Yeah. I thought I had looked there, but perhaps not. So, yeah, that is uh, interesting information. I, I, I kind of... You know, and I don't know what the law is, but it seems to me that, like, he shouldn't be able to turn it down to Mm -hmm. an extent. You know, he could give it all to charity or whatever, but it seems to me that if that's what Reggie Swire, you know, said that he wanted in a legally valid will, then it's Matthew's money. You know, and like I say, you could give it all away if that's what he needed to do for his conscience. Yeah. But I'm surprised, I'm kind of surprised that it would just go to somebody else. Uh You know, Uh, but again, I'm not a lawyer. We're no lawyers. Unlike Miranda's mother, so I, I trust her word on that. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Holly, who writes, Hi, Cousins Kelly and Tom. I thought it was time I dropped you guys a non-neurology, fake Patrick-free telegram to say how beyond thrilled I am that you guys are back podcasting Downton again. In the long, cold hinterland of the hiatus, I spent way too much time on Tumblr, where apparently you have to take some solemn oath to forever worship at the altar of Bates before you can have an account. Seriously. It's full of people talking about how Bates is the best boyfriend ever. Um, he went to prison for murder... 
and posting gifts of his gross naked torso from that post-sex scene with Anna. So it was like a breath of fresh air to hear the rallying cry of Shank Bates. Personally, I too really hope that Bates killed Vera. If I was Julian Fellows, God, what a disturbing thought. I would have Anna get Bates proven innocent and released from prison, only to have him reveal to her that he actually did kill her. Dum-dum-dum. Wouldn't that be so much more interesting? I also have to say that for some reason, every time you guys refer to Martha Levinson as Miguel, my brain hears Miguel, which is super confusing because I think you all are suddenly referring to passions, and it takes me a minute to figure out that you are not, in fact, talking about the most batshit crazy soap opera of all time, but just Cora's batshit crazy mother. And then I have to pause the podcast to pour out a little tea in remembrance of passions. I mean, there was a talking doll and an orangutan nurse that the show tried to submit for an Emmy, forcing the voting people to make a rule that nominees have to be human. Good times. Anyway, I'm in no way saying you shouldn't call her Miguel, but just wanted to throw that out there on the off chance that another cousin was having the same reaction. Maybe we should form a support group. Post-passions, post-traumatic stress disorder? Anyway, as always, thanks for the fantastic podcast, and can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about some of the plot twists coming up this season. Cousin Holly. Oh my gosh, okay. Yes. So... You were not at all alone, Cousin Holly, because <laughs> I got on our Twitter feed shortly after we released this episode, and everybody kept saying, who's Miguel? Who's Miguel? Mm-hmm. And Tom had said something about me about it to that effect, mm-hmm. but I don't really pay much attention when you talk right. around the house. We, we, yeah. This is really the only time that we actually <laughs> pay full attention to one another, it's, so it's thank true. you for saving our marriage, Cousins. <laughs> But so I kept seeing all these things about Miguel on Twitter, and I was like, are we all talking about passion? <laughs> because I was a huge fan of passion. Oh, yes. Ah, best, best soap opera of all time. Yeah, I mean, let me, let me put it this way. Kelly is such a big fan of passions that I, who have never seen passions, knew all the things that were mentioned <laughs> in that telegram. I mean, she doesn't even bring up... You know, the fake pregnancy mm-hmm. and the clown costumes and keeping the pregnant Sheridan in a hole <laughs> or, uh, you know, the craziness of the Miguel K. Charity love triangle. Weren't there some ghosts um, or something? I do not think they were. There were some evil spirits around. Okay. Generally not ghosts. There was a blind priest who could sense evil. Oh, wow. But it didn't really, like, he could sense it, but he would never really do anything about it. <laughs> right. It was very strange. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there was the uh, pairing of Rebecca and Gwen, who were always scheming to get Ethan and Teresa, who my mom and I called Purple Monkey Dishwasher, because whenever she would cry... We thought her face looked like a purple monkey dishwasher. That is a strange thing. It is a strange thing. But hey, mom, if you're still listening, I still <laughs> talk about passions all the time. Yeah. And once again, please stop listening now. <laughs> <laughs> Our next telegram comes from Cousin McSee. Hi, Tom and Kelly. Thanks for making me laugh so much for the past two seasons. I take every opportunity to recommend your podcast to Downton fans. Now, I started off as a Bates Anna fan, and I never quite got your intense scorn for him until you described Anna and Bates as Piglet and Eeyore. My eyes were opened, and now I understand completely. He really is Eeyore, only with the added irritant that he believes his misery and gloom are good because they're noble. I guess you can sign me up for a Shank Bates t-shirt now. As for Mac L's comment 
about American obstetrics being better, I think I have some information. It seems that twilight sleep deliveries became very popular in the U.S. between 1910 and 1920. A combination of morphine and scopolamine was used to dull pain and induce amnesia in birthing mothers. The procedure may have been used in Europe to some extent, but appears to have been particularly popular in America, where the legal status of midwives was less certain, and childbirth was rapidly moving from home to hospitals. It would certainly be in character for Mac L to talk up this new modern practice as superior to English traditions. Thanks again for the podcast and many happy returns. Um, so two things, yes. real quick. So instead of Mick L, we right. will be referring to Martha Levinson as Mac L. Yes. Like Jor L, but with more fox fur. <laughs> Secondly. I don't know, that's Jor L. <laughs> Uh, this Twilight Sleep thing sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we do this anymore? I'm sure that there's really good reasons, but oh my right. god. I mean, I think in general, the medical profession has shied away from morphine, you know, as much as possible. But. You know, there's gotta be, there's gotta be some other wonder drug. Uh, possibly. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't need to see it come out of me. I'm gonna be looking at it for the next 18 years. Right. Well. Probably it- longer if they're shiftless. <laughs> Which they probably will be. Yeah. Kids these days. Well, and we'll be like all encouraging and stuff, so. <laughs> right, that's They'll true. They'll go off and like study poetry. It's going to have self-esteem and everything. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, stay tuned for our baby. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm not pregnant, okay? People always think when you start talking about a baby that you're pregnant. Right. I'm not pregnant. Let's be clear. I'm drinking wine right now. <laughs> Our next telegram comes from Cousin Scott, who writes, Dearest Cousins, I understand your criticism about the seemingly contrived plot in which Lord Grantham turns out to be, not unlike Gareth Blackstock, Lenny Henry from Chef, stupid about money. But it's a great scene, and it leads to some golden moments. Lord G actually cries, and McGee, so very true to character, says, How horrible for you, even though it's her fortune that has been so carelessly lost. Also, there is a guilty pleasure in seeing the humiliation and the concern that Lord G has dropped the Downton torch and cannot pass it on. It also seems that this major event may be borne out in historical fact that several of these great castles no longer served as great employers because they could no longer be afforded for various reasons. Hint, hint, Tom. Maybe something like this actually happened in the day? I do think all of this would have been more impactful had this money's all gone plotline not been the subject of so many spoilers. At least it was addressed in the early moments of the first episode so we could see what happens next. But therein lies my real problem. The ensuing conflict between Mary and Matthew is a great high-stakes scene which should not have been resolved so quickly. The impending wedding almost compelled that tidy resolution. Of course, we still do not know how this plays out post-marriage. Still, it would have been nice to at least create some tension about whether the marriage would go off at all. Isn't it odd that we don't even see M&M actually tie the knot, even though we see the village treat Mary as if she were a princess about to be married, with a flag-waving procession? What was with all those blue and red flags, anyway? God, how boring life in that village must be. As for the ass who did the so-called prank against Branson, for some reason I immediately thought of Mitt Romney. I understood the Dowager Countess's statement about forgive but not forget as a slam at the prankster, not Tom, whose way she paid to attend the wedding. Anyway, great job as always, though I was hoping for more snarky ginger references. Is there some hidden code there that Julian Fellows has provided us? Your Kentucky cousin, Scott. All right, yeah, I agree. I mean, it seems like all of mm-hmm. the promotional stuff was pulled from this first episode. Right. Which is good. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to see anything else. Right, right. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, and as we see, you know, in the part of this episode that we're going to be covering, you know, there's still all of this snarking going on between right. Matthew and Mary about right. this money. And I'm like, yeah, uh, you really need to get this taken care of. Yeah. I mean, I pretty much, you know, I, I stand by what I said at the time, which is that there's an interesting storyline there, but just the timing and pace of it is all wrong mm-hmm. and weird. Um, the other thing I would say is that the blue and red flags, I assume, are colors in the Grantham arms, which we saw one time and I can no longer remember what they looked like. I see. Because they were the, we saw the sign of the Grantham Arms Hotel one time. Right. Yeah. Well, we can look into that, but I actually, now that you mentioned, I do remember, I think, some blue and red in there. So right, right. That so, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean, Mary is the princess of the county. Indeed. That she is, is, that is, you know, they're still in a, as we mentioned, a quasi feudal state. Mm hmm. And so, you know, these people have actually perhaps interacted with her in some way. Right. And yes, life in that village must be terribly boring. Uh, Yeah, it's true. But yeah, I mean, and the the whole thing about these estates is that they were all founded on the idea that you could make money off of land. And as agriculture became a less lucrative part of the economy, that simply became no longer true. You know, and that's why these newspaper tycoons are coming out there and buying up these estates because they actually have the money to afford it. Mm -hmm. It used to be... That if you had an estate, by definition, you could support it because you had all that land to grow right. food on. And, you know, that stopped being true in the century prior to this time period. And, uh, you know, but of course, people in the system never realized they, they just thought it was this God-given thing mm-hmm. that there should be big old families with big houses. Well, because, I mean, even for the people who aren't living in these big houses – to conceive of the idea that these big houses are going out of existence and they're going to have to completely change their way of life, right. of course you would be in denial. Right. You don't right. want to have to probably relocate to an urban center because mm-hmm. that's where all the work is going. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and that, you know, that same thing is happening in America today. Mm-hmm. Finally, we have a telegram from Cousin Gabby. Hey there, cousins. I've been waiting for such a long time to write to you guys. I just finally got up to be with the current episodes right after you posted the Room with the View episode. I had so much to say about Downton Series 1 and 2, but thought it might be a little odd since it's been so long since you originally posted them. I do get kind of sad to be caught up, though, when I finish an episode and then can't move on to the next and don't know what to do with myself. I was so excited for Downton to start up again. I was counting down all Sunday. When it finally started, I was slightly disappointed. I still loved it way too much, and I'm already anxiously waiting for the next episode, but it was not nearly as good as most of the previous episodes. I think that's partly due to the fact that I am dreading them moving into the 1920s. As weird as it is, Edwardian England is my favorite time period in history. I've studied pretty much everything about it, and I've even lived in it for three weeks as part of a study, much like Manor House, but we didn't get to be on television. I have some hilarious and quite interesting stories I brought back from there. Stay tuned. And I am living proof that not all ladies' maids are bitches like O'Brien and Ava Morrison. Now that Downton's moved on to the 20s, the Edwardian traces are slowly fading away, which could have happened a lot later in the series if they didn't always make such big jumps in time. Plus, how ugly are the clothes they wore in the 20s? I'm just hoping Downton Abbey doesn't go down the same hill a lot of shows do. It seems like once shows become overly popular, it goes to the writer's head and for some reason everything just starts to suck. About Thomas. I think the reason he and O'Brien are so against each other now is because of Thomas's newfound bitchiness, almost like she doesn't deserve to plot with him anymore. Ever since Thomas became valid, he's gotten a pretty big head. And I'm pretty sure the only reason he wanted to be a valet is so that he could become BFFs with Lord Grantham, which no one can do like O'Brien and McGee, so he already loses. I thought it was because being a footman just all around sucks, but then he seemed pretty jealous when Alfred got the job as footman. And I think he better get back on O'Brien's good side before it's too late, because I don't know exactly what happened between them, but she will kick his ass. 
I'm glad you finally realized that you indeed have underestimated McGee. I do agree that she has one of the weirdest unidentifiable accents I've ever heard, especially when she says luncheon, and she's an even weirder singer, if you've ever heard her, but she is a really, really great actress. I'm pretty sure the only reason she doesn't seem as talented as she is is because she's playing a pretty dumb, naive character, like most rich women seem to be, or at least act during that time. And I'm also glad Edith is finally winning over team members. I never really liked her, but I also never hated her as much as everyone. As for Bates, I'm completely on your side. Bates is the most annoying fucking human being ever. Although, Brendan Coyle can be kind of awesome sometimes. Well, I just got a new stack of Edwardian books to read for Christmas that I can't wait to start. Sorry for a slightly long telegram. I felt the need to get it all out there. Absolutely love your podcast and definitely looking forward to the next episode. Till next week, Cousin Gabby. P.S. I totally wrote about you guys on my blog, somehowsublime.blogspot.com. Sorry if that's creepy. P.P.S. I now only call lunch luncheon and only say it in my not entirely bad McG accent. Thank you, Kelly, for giving me a reason to get way more weird looks than usual. All right. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Gabby. That's really cool that she got to do like a manor house experiment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I um, would I would be interested in hearing more about that. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and I just don't know about Thomas, you know, being a valet, because technically now, you know, O'Brien used to outrank Thomas, and now they're technically equal. Right, that's I true. Mean, that's, except that's, that he does outrank her in the sense that he's right, right, valet right. to the lord of the manor and she's to the lady. Right, right. No, that's that's actually a good point. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, think, I don't um, think he's jealous of Alfred being a footman. I think he's just jealous because Thomas has had to fight for everything. Right, yeah, and that's that's what it's more about, mm-hmm. uh, you know— any not any particular position that he has just the ease with which he got it right um yeah uh i would also say uh you know you're right we're we're on board with mcgee at this point um and anybody who wants to write us anywhere about us anywhere is more than yes. welcome to and i checked the entry and it's a very glowing review of the podcast and uh for posting about us on your blog cousin gabby you are awarded cousin of the week hooray so great. That is our uh, telegrams from our cousins. Mm-hmm. Please keep writing. We love sharing your telegrams with the rest of the cousins and hearing your theories. Uh, we always like to hear that other people hate Bates. Right. So definitely keep that mm-hmm. coming. Yes. And uh, we're just looking forward to connecting with everybody throughout the course of this season. Mm-hmm. And obviously, so it's become pretty clear that for the duration of this podcast, we're going to be about an hour or two behind. Right. Well, I'm not sure. It's going to compound are, itself. Right. If they're doing two every week, then we're going to get well behind. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, all the longer for you to be able to listen to our podcast. So <laughs> that, that works out fine. Yes. Um, yeah. We will uh, take this opportunity, though, real quick to just say that we saw Laura Linney. So. We, oh, we saw her. Yes. And she did not say anything of substance. No, she didn't. She just talked about how much we, the audience, all love Stoughton Abbey. That they should be classified as a controlled substance. Right. Which is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Whoever, I hope whatever intern wrote that got <laughs> bitch slapped and sent on his merry way. Well, yeah, it was, uh, it was disappointing. She didn't sort say of. anything about history. Yeah, well, that's that's what we wanted to hear was banal insights into the 1920s, and we didn't get them. Well, and, you know, it's interesting, because Cousin Gabby brings it up in her telegram about mm. how, you know, she said a seat move out of the Edwardian period, and I kind of am, too, because it's a lot harder to research the 1920s in Britain mm. versus the Edwardian era. Yeah, yeah. If you search for Edwardian era, that's what you get. If you search for 1920s, 
all you get is flappers and jazz age and stuff. And we're just not there yet. Yeah. And it just doesn't seem to have an identity Mm -hmm. in the same way that Edwardian England had. Yeah. Which, you know. Which is, yeah, which is true. It's interesting because uh, 20s in America had a much stronger identity Mm -hmm. than the, you know, Edwardian equivalent era. Well, even in, in... in Paris with like all the expats. I mean, that's yeah, kind of largely yeah. an American thing. Right. Right. And I mean, but fashion was essentially invented. Mm-hmm. Hot couture was invented in, in yeah. France in the 1920s. Yeah. And I, mean, I, w- I will say, you know, obviously tastes vary. I like the cl- clothes in the twenties. I mean, to me personally, okay. I'm, I'm a fan of them, you know, well, they look great on lady Mary. So. Well, they do. Yeah. So, uh, and I put this up on the Facebook page, but if you know of any really good resources online about the 20s, specifically in Britain, definitely let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's just, it's challenging. I need to find the, uh, Edwardian promenade equivalent <laughs> right. for the 1920s. Yeah. Although I'm sure Evangel will be doing some stuff right, about right. the 20s for the Downton Abbey thing. She's but, no uh, fool. She is not a fool. <laughs> She's a very savvy lady. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. I just, I think it's weird because, Britain in particular was in this strange kind of limbo between the end of World War One and the beginning of World War Two, because so much of their industry was in really dire straits at that point, mm-hmm. you know, just because of technological advances. And also, you know, their workforce was depleted. Yeah, yeah. The men were gone. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just much harder for us to get a great, you know kind of shallow sense of it i mm-hmm. think you have to dig a little bit deeper mm-hmm. which we'll be happy to do right it's just surprising yeah yeah with that said let's dive into downton abbey series three episode two let's do it <laughs> uh so yeah it opens up with something going towards downton but it's not human powered it's a car it's a car progress that's right moving on up <laughs> You get Matthew and Mary are the ones in the car and they're driving and giggling about how much Lord Grantham and the Dowager Countess will hate their snazzy new convertible. <laughs> Matthew says they will howl at the mood in unison, which is ridiculous. They're going to get there in broad daylight. Right. It's true. Also, really? It's- I think it's that it's a convertible. I guess. I think, it, you know, it's a convertible. It's this extravagant thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is, it is kind of extravagant for people that just lost all their money. I will say that. But Matthew apparently still has his income. Well, I mean, mean, that's true. They, uh, they are going to need to go house shopping. (laughs) McGee and Lord Grantham are indeed somewhat taken aback by the car, not howling at the moon taken aback, but, uh, they, they do comment on it. Uh, Matthew reveals that he ordered it in London on the way to the honeymoon and picked it up on the way back and says that it's an AC which Lord Grantham is very relieved because at least it's English, which is exactly the same way my dad feels about cars, except with American in place <laughs> yes. of English. Yeah. McGee and Mary greet each other like normal human beings. Uh, then Lord Grantham asks Matthew how the honeymoon was. Matthew says, my eyes have been opened. And Lord Grantham says, don't I know it? Like, ew. I just like to state that I officially, for the record, believe that they're talking about the south of France. <laughs> That is all that they are thinking about. My, my real question here is how likely is it that Matthew is actually a virgin? It's true. He and fought is, in World War One. Mm-hmm. We and, They have been dating or not dating for eight years. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, they've certainly, certainly people were chaperoned to a much greater extent than, you know, they were much less able to get time alone. But, but I still feel like, well, I mean, obviously he and Mary haven't done anything. 
I don't right. think he and Lavinia did anything. Right. I just feel like there's no. I, I would and, lay and really I, good odds that while he was, you know, yeah. off gallivanting in the trenches, only well, went to college for God's sake. He did go to college. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think, and I think we've actually discussed this before and and reached the same conclusion that we don't think he's a virgin. Yeah, but you know, well, I, don't I know. mean, certainly he wasn't going to say eh, nothing I haven't seen before to Lord Grantham. Yes, which is fine. He could have just said it was great. We saw some sights. Mm-hmm. We ate some saltwater taffy. I don't know <laughs> what people do in the south of France. I assume it's the same as the Jersey Shore. <laughs> right. That's a reasonable assumption, Kelly. Thank you. Yes. But uh yeah, so people who are about to get married, when your father-in-law asks you about the honeymoon, don't be creepy. <laughs> Mary asks about Anna. Uh, she apparently came back earlier. Yeah. Did Matthew not bring a valet? That is a question that is left unanswered. Because I did listen to that Julian Fellows interview. Uh-huh. And one of the things that struck me, it was his Fresh Air interview. Um, he was talking about how in those days you really didn't need someone to dress you because of the collars and the studs. And mm-hmm. it was just all very difficult to kind of maneuver on your own. Right. I mean, I guess it's possible you could probably rent a valet. Yeah, that would make sense. Well, I know in, in Jeeves and Wooster, like uh, Bertie Wooster, there was a service. So if... Um, when Jeeves was going on vacation or when they had a fight as they often did and he quit, uh, he would call the service uh-huh. and the service would send over a new man for okay. him. Yeah. So that, that may be what something like that. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and that brings us rather quickly to one of our recurring segments with our very own automotive auteur, Kelly Anakin, it's fashion backwards. Thank you, Tom. Uh, yeah, I can't believe we haven't really talked about cars. Yeah. Before. Yeah. Considering that someone who drives them ran off with the daughter of one of the, <laughs> one of the daughters of the Earl of Grantham. That's true. Well, and, you know, driving nearly drove Edith into the arms of a farmer. <laughs> true. Yeah. I think we talked about the fashion for driving. Okay. Um, cause, you know, that all was familiar to me. Mm-hmm. But the history of cars themselves are pretty interesting. At the beginning of the Edwardian period, horses were still the primary means of transport. Right. Um, but by 1910, automobiles had replaced them almost entirely, mm. uh, which to me is kind of the same as, you know, sort of when the internet got invented, things went digital very, very quickly and mm-hmm. continue to do so. Yeah, yeah. Manufacture of automobiles actually began in France and Germany. Edmund Benz invented the four-stroke engine in 1885 and built the first cars in 1886. The first modern cars as we know them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prior to that, there had been steam-powered vehicles. Mm. But, you know, we're talking about a, you know, uh, gasoline-powered, you know, environment-destroying machine. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And that would be Edmund Benz of Mercedes-Benz. Right. And there was also a guy named Gottlieb Daimler. And he created his own version in 1885. Uh, and then really, though, the uh, the contemporary automobile, what kind of really evolved into what we all drive today, mm. was actually built in France by Pinard et Lavasser in 1890. Mm. And so this model, the engine was in the front under the hood. It had a chassis or body, which is the same pretty much as what we have today, uh, a sliding gear transmission, clutch and pedal brakes, and a foot accelerator. Now, technology wasn't moving as quickly in Britain because it was slowed down by something called the Red Flag Act of 1865. Uh, this is the clause that caused all the problems. Any vehicle on the public highway other than a horse-drawn vehicle must be preceded by a man carrying a red flag in day and a red lantern at night <laughs> to warn oncoming traffic of the vehicle behind him. So uh, the railroads had really 
kind mm. of, you know, yeah, put their foot down here and they wanted to uh, keep steam cars mm-hmm. off the roads and from taking away their business. Ah, I see. But uh, because you had to have this man, the speed limit was only four or five miles oh, an hour. Right. So you might as well have been on a horse. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was very difficult to drive a car at the speeds that they were Right, without running over the man with the flag. In 1895, the Honorable Evelyn Ellis brought his French-made four-horsepower Pinard machine to England to defy the act. Uh, And then in 1896, the act was finally repealed, and the speed limit was increased to 14 miles per hour. So all of the motorists uh, commemorated this occasion uh, by taking a London to Brighton run on November 14th that year. So they all got in their cars and were probably drunk and (laughs) drove up to Brighton. So the other thing that I do want to mention, because, you know, this is the time that the American vehicle is is rising and yeah. mass production. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought it would be interesting just to kind of explain where that comes from. Um, so production line manufacturer of automobiles was started by Ransom Olds in 1902. That's of Oldsmobile mm-hmm. in Lansing, Michigan. And uh, he based it on assembly line techniques invented by Mark Isambard Brunel in uh, the Portsmouth Block Mills in England in 1802. Oh. So it's interesting that the assembly line... Uh, method existed right. for well over a hundred years before it was actually put into use to build automobiles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it took right. a while to invent automobiles. Yeah, but still, well, that's how we think of assembly lines as starting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what we learned in sixth grade history class exactly. or whatever. And then Henry Ford uh, really expanded the assembly line technique. And I mean, that's obviously, yeah, yeah. you think of the assembly line, you think of cars, you think of Henry Ford. Right. And basically, his cars were built so quickly that they would come off the line in 15 minute intervals. And before he implemented this system, it required 12.5 man hours to build a car. After he implemented the system, one hour and 33 minutes. Whoa. Yeah. Very, very, very big difference there. Yeah. Uh, and it was so successful that they couldn't paint the cars quickly enough <laughs> as they were coming off of the assembly line. Only uh, Japan black paint would dry fast enough. So they couldn't offer cars in a variety of colors <laughs> until 1926 when a fast-drying Duco lacquer was invented. Yeah. And actually, you know, I have read the book Ragtime and seen the musical Ragtime. So I kind of tend to think of Henry Ford as a evil person right uh but actually his safety procedures uh where basically each worker had a specific location on the assembly line to be and they weren't allowed to wander off it really dramatically reduced the rate of injury Mm. and this situation where uh you know we're able to produce these automobiles at such a high rate really coincided with the rise of america as a financial superpower Mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense yeah and Ford actually expanded his business uh, to France and Britain, uh, also Denmark and Germany. But then in 1921, Citron was the very first native European manufacturer to adopt the assembly line production method. Mm. And basically after that, you had to be an assembly line right. company or you were going to go out of business. Right. And, uh, you know, again, much like the dot-com boom, 
when automotive technology really started taking off, it was developed very, very quickly because you had all of these small manufacturers trying to get an edge on each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, Henry Ford completely blew the model out of the water. Right. But, you know, that technology then existed for everybody to use things like the electric ignition and electric self-starter. Those were invented by Charles Kettering. In Dayton, Ohio. In Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Uh, He invented that for the Cadillac Motor Company uh, in 1910 through 1911. Uh, Independent suspension and four-wheel brakes. And then the model T wasn't uh, released until 1927. So the Model T wouldn't have been an option. Ford cars were available in Britain as of 1911. Okay. So it's possible that Matthew could have chosen to buy a Ford, Mm -hmm. uh, thus necessitating Lord Grantham's comment. I have to imagine that German cars were not selling well in Britain at this time. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that I found really interesting, um, since the 1920s, that's when cars just, they're just mass produced. Mm-hmm. You know, there's really very few custom car companies still in existence. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a guy named Alfred P. Sloan who came up with the idea of different makes of cars produced by one company uh-huh. so that you can move up as you make uh-huh. more money and become uh-huh. more successful. Okay. So I found that very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now, as far as Britain goes, in terms of just the culture surrounding automobiles, um, automobiles initially, it was just sort of a, a hobby. Mm-hmm. It was like sailing. They'd say, you know, oh, let's go motoring and we'd yeah. go, you know, drive around. Okay. Uh, it wasn't thought of as transportation initially. You know, it was just a toy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, the camcorder versus the camera phone yeah. at that point. Uh, but they grew in popularity when King Edward embraced cars. And later it exploded when he finally allowed Queen Alexandra to have her own car. She really wanted her own car. <laughs> uh, he would not permit her to have her own car, but then she kept like sneaking and taking other people. I mean, you know, with their permission. Right, right, right. So he finally let her have one. And <laughs> she, she wasn't was... just going out stealing no, no, cars. No, no. Although that would be great. That would be great. But she was apparently a terribly notorious backseat driver. She would just like poke her driver with her umbrella <laughs> and like yell at like dogs and children. <laughs> <laughs> that got in her way and when she was uh allowed to have her own car female interest in driving also just went through the roof mm-hmm. um you know because now is respectable it was okay for women to get into it uh there was a woman named baroness campbell von lawrence she took up motoring in 1900 and she started traveling all over the place and she wrote articles for publications uh, like Car Illustrated, Auto Car, Ladies Field, and Heart and Home, hmm. which sounds delightful. Yeah. And she also invented her own uh, luggage transport system. Uh, she designed two square fiber boxes to fit on the luggage grid at the rear. They went on the grid with a piece of canvas underneath and over the top, a tailored cover and proofed canvas leather bound. So, you know, she solved some problems for some ladies. Yeah. As well as being, you know, a crackerjack motorist. Yeah. There's also Miss Mee of Chichester Cathedral, who in 1905 became the first lady to pass the examination in driving and general proficiency set by the Royal Automobile Club for the owners of cars. Mm. My favorite part of this article that I was reading, this is from Edwardian Promenade. Mm. Uh, Automobiles increased the time allotted for leisure activities. So, you know, if you were going to an estate party, it didn't have to Mm. be this like, oh, we're on this tight schedule and everything has to be just so. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also it really increased the amount of time that people could spend having their extramarital affairs or the ease with which they can conduct them Mm -hmm. because it's much simpler to just hop in your car, zip somewhere, you know, uh, 
do, do your thing, do your thing and then come back. Yeah. You know, your, your spouse has a lot less time to be wondering where you are and why it's taking you so long to get back. Yeah. So we heard Matthew say that he had an AC, which stands for auto carrier. Uh, and this company is still in existence today. It's oh. changed owners quite a few times. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure because the, I saw some sort of conflicting things, but they stayed custom for a really long time. Oh, okay. Um, which may be why I, I think it was, uh, at some point in the late twenties, they had to be bought out. And I think it was because yeah. they kind of refused to get on the, the right. mass production well, bandwagon. Makes, Cause you know, Matthew said he ordered it and then picked mm-hmm. it up. So yeah. Uh, so auto carriers started in 1902 when a London butcher named John Portwine, uh, got together with a young engineer named John Weller, uh, just a butcher looking for a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they built a four seat tourer and they exhibited actually at the 1903 motor show at the crystal palace in South London. Oh. And it was very impressive to everybody, but it was way too expensive to actually manufacture. So they never produced that car. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they tried to come up with a three wheeled delivery vehicle for commercial use. And then that actually did go into production. And that was called the auto carrier. Hence oh, okay. The name. They and their company was called Auto Car and Accessories Limited. By 1907, their delivery carton was placed replaced by a passenger seat, and the Sociable, their first passenger car, hmm. was created. Then in 1911, they reformed the company uh, under the name Auto Carriers Limited, and then in 1922, a guy named Selwyn Francis Edge uh, bought it and turned it into AC cars limited. So that's the guy who bought them out in the okay. early twenties. Yeah. Uh, and then the AC emblem came into, to being, uh, for the sociable in 1907. Oh, okay. So these are just two guys kind of who bumbled into the, uh, right. the car making business. Yeah. Uh, in 1913, they made the first four-wheel car. So the Sociable is still a three-wheeled oh. situation. Huh. Uh, it's a four-cylinder called the 10-horsepower AC. They did not have very creative names for their cars. <laughs> uh, this model is sometimes also called the Fivet because it used an engine of French design that was called a Fivet engine. Yeah. And then 1914 through 1918, surprise, surprise, they did not get to make too many cars. Right. You know, they devoted all their efforts to the war and they did develop an armored car but that i can only imagine they called it something stupid and it had like (laughs) six wheels or something um and then after the war they continued with the fivet design but the fivet engine factory actually had been destroyed so they had to use a replacement engine from anzani which was i think italian uh and that was an 11.9 horsepower engine Mm. And they had two models. There was one that was the two-seater, which was the 11.9 horsepower sports car. And then there's the Tourer, which was just a two-seater with a dicky seat, which I assume is like a jump seat. Yeah. Um, and then the Tourer also had a six-cylinder version that Weller had been developing for a while. Uh, and they made some other models and some very, you know, like some limited edition cars in the 20s. But their main products were the Tourer and also the sports car. Okay. So as far as I can tell, the car that Matthews purchased here is the sports car. Okay. Um, it's got the convertible option. Mm-hmm. And then um, just some details about that model. It, you know, had a, a separate chassis you know, just like all the cars at the time, mm-hmm. uh, had a wood frame and aluminum and steel body panels. Um, and then of course we already mentioned, uh, the, the engines, if anybody cares, it was a, uh, 1327 CC Fivet engine and a 1496 CC Anzani, okay. depending on whether you got the car uh, <laughs> right. before they ran out of engines. <laughs> yeah. 
So that's uh, that's cars. Interesting. And making them and possibly buying them. All right. I did see, actually, when cars first started being produced, they were about, I think, like, I think 850 pounds hmm, okay. uh, for a car, which translates to about twenty to $21,000. Yeah. So in some senses, and I'm sure cost of production has probably gone down, but I mean, some right. cars have definitely, yeah. you know, yeah. become more affordable mm-hmm. than when they first started. Yeah. Well, all right. Thank you, Kelly. You're welcome, Tom. Back to the episode. That's right. Thomas is grilling Alfred about why he's got a shirt down in the servants' hall. He wants to know who it belongs to. Alfred tells him that it's Matthews, and he just brought it down to iron. And Thomas is absolutely horrified that both he and Mr. Mosley have been been passed over to ballot for Matthew in favor of Alfred. It really is. He... Matthew is super, like, PMS-y in this episode. He is. He just, like, flies into a rage at the drop (laughs) of a hat. Yeah. So Anna just diplomatically is like, oh, yeah. I love her in this scene because she just looks like some old woman, like, drinking coffee at a cafe (laughs) and smoking, like, ah, he's staying on down at Crawley House. (laughs) Um, But, you know, she's just like, yeah, he's staying down there. And O'Brien is all smug with her new smug bang saying that Mr. Carson (laughs) thought it would be best for Alfred to take over. And uh, Thomas tells Alfred never to open a shirt or put studs in it anywhere but a dressing room because it might get marked, which right. is actually really good advice. Yeah. Like, that's the problem. This whole episode, Thomas just gives all this great advice, but he is such a dick about it. Yeah. Because O'Brien says, oh, that's that's you, Thomas, always helpful. And I'm like, but but that was helpful. Yeah, that, that was, was actually, actually yeah. extremely helpful because Alfred doesn't seem to know what the hell he's doing. <laughs> right. Uh, and Alfred boringly thanks Thomas. He's still pretty much just a ginger bump on a ginger log at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but O'Brien is there and she just throws some shade at Thomas and, you know, <laughs> saying that remark about you're always being so helpful. And I was like, O'Brien and Alfred are like a less hilarious version of Pinky in the Brain. <laughs> like he's tall and dumb and she's small and crafty. Yeah. And none of their plans ever come to fruition. Yeah. Although he's not, I mean, well, he again, doesn't, yeah, he he's doesn't not have... making the plan, but right. much like Pinky. People just tell him what to do, and he's like, oh, I guess I'll be a valet now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the dressing gong rings ominously off in the distance. <laughs> this isn't over. <laughs> it's true. Upstairs, Mackel asks how Mary and Matthew enjoyed the south of France. Mary- is that really what people call it? The I- south of France? I think it is. Can you just call it by its name? The south of France. Mm. I mean, they also call it the Côte d'Azur or the Riviera, but... See, the Riviera, that's just like, hey, like, that's a place. I, I don't know what to tell you, I don't Kelly. go around being like, I hung out in the South of America. <laughs> well, that's true, you don't. I mean, I don't generally hang out there, but if I was, I would not say that. I'd say I'm in the South. Well, yeah, but that's because you're in America. Psh. Anyway. Do what I want. <laughs> yes, you will. Uh, Mary says that it was too hot there. Uh, however, Mackell thinks that it's a shame that they close things up in the summer because she loves the sun, to which the Dowager Countess replies, so we see, which is not actually true. It would be a good line if it made sense, but it doesn't. No. She well, her, doesn't look any different than the Dowager Countess. I think, frankly, she looks a little better. I think I, she's wearing more makeup. Right. But, but yeah, she, she looks does, better. She does not appear to be more weathered. Yeah, and Mackell does not respond to the insult, though she does pick up on it. Mary says that you couldn't be in Cannes in the summer. Which is why the festival is in May. Oh, right. <laughs> Mackell insists that she could, because uh, she's just apparently 
you know. This is what I love about her. She just reminds me of me. Because yeah. it reminds me of, like, you know, being at, like, family dinners. Yeah. And, like, your mom telling me stuff. Like, yeah. telling me how I would feel. And I'm like, no, I don't feel that way. Well, how dare you presume? It's true. Because whenever she's talking at dinner, she's also, like, industriously chopping up and eating her food. Yeah. Like, she's... <laughs> She doesn't, she's not delicate. She doesn't pause. She's yeah. elbows going back and forth. Is that she's, how I eat? No, that's just something I like about her. Okay. No, yeah. she's just, she's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm having a difficult time because I really like this character. Yeah. Yeah. But it's five Maggie Smiths, not five Shirley MacLaine's. That's true. Well, look, uh, she's, you know, she's not a permanent Downton resident. <sighs> okay. Ah, uh, yes, and uh, the Dowager Countess quietly asks Lord Grantham how long MacEll is staying, and he says, who knows? The Dowager Countess says that no guest should be admitted without settling the date of their departure, which, amen to Absolutely. That. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is ab- as much as I love MacEll. <laughs> yeah. Which is a lot. Yeah. Like, don't come to my house and not know when you're leaving, <laughs> because I have things to do. Right. Like, sit in my underwear and watch American Horror Story. Yeah. Which you can't do with guests. You can't. No. Mm-mm. It's Not impossible. without things getting weird. Uh, yeah. So, Isabel, who doesn't have a nickname, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, we used to call her Mom, but then it that was weird. Well, she doesn't She doesn't really exist as Matthew's mother in the way that at first she yeah, did. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. Anyway, Isabel tells Matthew that there's a hideous pile of post <laughs> on the hall table, but tells him not to look at it that night. It's like, you know, they've been boning for weeks. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, she also tells Mary that she's come up with some sort of unsavory do-gooding that the Dowager Countess won't let her talk about at the uh, dinner table. Right. Which elicits hoops of laughter from <laughs> Mac L. And Mary's face is, when are all these bitches going to die already? <laughs> yeah, she Seriously. Is, she is not amused. Mm-mm. She just totally lost her sense of humor. She did. Uh, McGee tells Mac L that she does agree with the Dowager Countess that some subjects are not suitable for every ear, <laughs> indicating Carson and Alfred. And then MacAl suggests that Carson and Alfred know more about life than they ever will, which is undoubtedly true. But Carson seems terribly offended. I know. It's great. He's like, I don't know anything about <laughs> life, nor should I care to. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham asks the Dowager Countess if they can't stop this conversation. And the Dowager Countess says, how? She's like a runaway train. Which, have you ever seen a runaway train? Yeah, much scarier. Yeah. <laughs> She's just, uh, you know, confident. Yep. Uh, Mary... Who, boy, she uh, she asked Edith if she's still seeing poor old Stralin, which is just like, whoa. No, she's stuck on Uber, bitch. Yeah. She just can't stop now. No, she really can't. Like, look, take out your problems with Matthew on Matthew. He well deserves them. Absolutely. Yeah, like, don't, jeez. Well, know, I thought she'd, like, stop being mean about that. I know, but, you know, apparently not. Anyway, Edith... Uh, asks Just why- saying, uh, Sir Anthony Strallen has a lower BMI than one Matthew Crawley. <laughs> that is absolutely true. He works out and stuff. He seems to be in quite good health. For a man with a bum arm? Yeah. He looks great. He really does. Edith bristles as well she might and says she can't understand why she's calling him poor or old when he's neither of those things. Which, he's a little old. He's kind of old. Yeah. He's old. He's old-esque. Yeah. Nonetheless, point taken, Edith. She shouldn't have said that. Um, Mary just gives her a bitch face. That's that's what she's doing in this scene. And the Dowager Countess, as they're all leaving, the Dowager Countess mutters to Lord Grantham that he 
needs to talk to Sir Anthony and, and not let this Stralin nonsense continue. Bad move, Violet. <laughs> uh, agreed. We, it's not like we can't see their point at all. You know, we understand what they're saying, but. I'm just, once again, it's uh, yeah. been eight years. Has there been a swarm of suitors breaking down Edith's door? No. I don't believe there have. That farmer just stands outside <laughs> at the end of the driveway going, Edith! <laughs> Edith! I want to show you the colored lights! <laughs> wow. Well, if you've read or seen uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, you will be peeing your pants right now. <laughs> so uh, take a moment and clean up. Down in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore is very pleased to see that Mac L cleaned awful her plate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. Uh, being that awful is the internal organs of various animals, which yes. Brits love. They do. Um, Crazy for them. Americans are not quite so enthusiastic. Right. Uh, particularly at this point in, in history. Mm. But Mrs. Patmore says she's never sure if Americans will like it. And Alfred chose his very first spark of personality. It's true. He says MacAl would eat anything put in front of her. What a gob! Thought Mr. Carson was going to put a bag over her head. <laughs> That's my terrible impression of him because I cannot remember what he sounds like. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he sees Reed... Mac L's ladies maid come in, right? And or, he literally, he literally rears back, rears back, and goes, "Oops!" Yeah. And like, way to blow all the goodwill that I just built up for you, yeah, with this one stupid reaction. Yeah, it's true. Also, Reed continues to uh, add justification to my theory that she's some kind of gypsy by really, she kind of materializes at all times. Anytime she shows up, <laughs> she's just sort of, and then she's there looking at you. I don't, I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't know where Americans get their servants. She's just so intense. Uh, Reed says it's fine that Mrs. Levinson knows the servants all make fun of her, but she makes fun of all of them, too. And Mrs. Patmore helpfully points out that they're all even then. Yeah. Mrs. Patmore is quite the diplomat when she tries. She is. She's not easily embarrassed. No. Yeah. See, my side note is that Reed is so pretty. I think she's so pretty. I have a giant girl crush on her. I'm not at all saying that she's not pretty. So then here's my other thing. I thought that she was an American, but her accent sounds kind of Yorkshire to me. It kind of does. It's it's a puzzler. It is quite a puzzler. And you'd think we would have looked up where she was from or something. All right. But we did not do this. Nope. So uh, put a note down for next week. (laughs) Uh, in the kitchen, Daisy is saying that the oven is not hot enough, and Mrs. Patmore says that, you know, it's something, some proverb along the lines of it's a bad workman that blames his tools, which, you know, when the tools don't work, you, you need to fix the tools. You need to report them to him. She she doesn't want to fix anything. Right. She's just doing that manager bullshit. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, well, as long as I ignore the problem, I can blame you when it all goes to shit. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Hughes comes in and is like, oh, oh, you're busy to Mrs. Patmore. And Mrs. Patmore's like, nope, just shaming a member of my own class and taking it down a peg. What's <laughs> up? <laughs> but it comes out. This this is true. Uh, although really, I don't know, Mrs. Patmore has gotten less shouty. She has gotten much. Well, yeah. Daisy has gotten less stupid. Well, that's true. In a lot of respects. Yeah, yeah that's certainly true. Uh, but Mrs. Hughes asks if Mrs. Patmore can spare a minute. Back up in the dining room, Matthew and Lord Grantham are sitting in the dining room drinking some fancy brandy, which Matthew false modests his way through. He's all, oh, you didn't open this for me, your sole heir and only hope of saving your home. Not little old obsequious me! 
Now I'm just a country lawyer, see. <laughs> oh my god. He's so ridiculous. Yeah. I'm like, Lord Grantham literally hates every member of his family. Who else is he gonna open the fancy brandy for? Yeah, Isis. Oh, probably. Yeah. Aw, she deserves it. <laughs> yeah. She works hard. Uh, She's anyway, in this scene, incidentally. This is the thing, though. Was there a time that I didn't hate Matthew? <laughs> I seem to remember that there was one. And, like... Uh, yeah. No, it... I, it, I just... When? Uh, yeah. Was no, it, it back in season one? Because he did some dumb stuff even then. He did. I think... He, he... I think, you know, he was more charming and... He was more actual modest instead of fake modest. Yeah. I well, it's like, look, at some point, if you've decided, hey, I'm going to go ahead and be the Earl of Grantham. Right. Then be the Earl of Grantham. Yeah. I, I mean, know, say like, what you will but about. But also, don't be a dick about it. Right. I mean, say what you will about Lord Grantham. He is the Earl of Grantham and he, you know, he doesn't, he he is it and he doesn't, you know, apologize for it or do it. You know, he just knows well, his position. Well, he's and not he, a jerk to his servants. Right. I mean, right. he's a bit clueless. Yeah. Like, we have plenty of complaints about his character. But, but I mean, yeah. just Matthew seems to have done this thing where he's unwilling to take on the title, but he's been totally willing to take on the privilege. Right. It's very, very perplexing and confusing. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, Lord Grantham is like, duh, of course I opened this for you. You're literally the only person I like other than Isis. <laughs> Both of you are here. Yeah. Uh, Isis is back. Yeah. Although I'm not sure if it is Isis because she, wouldn't you know, she be like well over 70 in dog years at this point? Possibly. I mean, which wouldn't be unheard of. Oh, wait, series two opened in 1914, right? Yes. Okay. So she'd be six. So like that's six times seven is... 42. Yeah. Okay. So the, yeah. So Okay. Maybe. Yeah. All right. All right, Isis. Yeah. Welcome back, Isis. Judith just want to put you. Matthew says he hopes that they can always be honest with each other, and uh, Lord Grant's like, true dat, Holmes. Doesn't say that. Uh, but <laughs> Matthew uh, mentions that Mary told him about Downton's financial situation, and Lord Grantham, well, he, like, sighs and is like, I suppose it was best, but he clearly, he want, he intended for her to tell him. Like, that was his plan, was he would tell her right. and they would discuss it. So why he acts like... He just wants to be the big man in front of Matthew yeah, and I, Isis. I guess so, yeah. But yeah, he's he's glad. Uh, and then Matthew asks if Lord Grantham knows about Reggie Swire's will. Do we get to see them talk about Reggie Swire's will? Not at all. Surprise! Yep. Cut to the Dowager Countess telling her that Lord Grantham told her all about it, which I found a little confusing because I was like, whoa, did he know about the will? And then he told her. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that is not what she's talking about. She's talking about losing all their money. And she points out once again that it was so foolish to invest so much in one venture. Mary agrees. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, can we just get a scene of all these women having an intervention with Lord Grantham and Matthew? We've asked you here today because it's become very clear that you're addicted to making asinine choices about finance. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of too late for that. I know, like, but if they find new sources of money, then they right. can bother. But with that's the my point, though. Yeah. Like going forward, it's like no, no touchy. <laughs> right, you're not allowed. Like you can sign everything, but you have to clear it with us. Yeah. I mean, again, that still doesn't work because they don't have like the right to vote or own property. Well, that's true. Uh, but the Dowager Countess says that even Lloyd George can't want to see the Crawleys turn out of Downton. <laughs> I know Lloyd George was like the Barack Obama of his time. <laughs> Mary says she's not sure that that's an appropriate comparison. Right, which is 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there are and two like, different wasn't people. He, or... Wasn't he trying to, like, dismantle the, ar- the aristocracy anyway? Like, so that's kind of, like, yeah. I think the Dowager Countess makes a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm also sure that maybe she's wrong. Right. I think I, Lloyd George would be like, hey, just get a different house. Yeah. Deal. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe Mary just found it inappropriate to mention the name of Lloyd George. I'm it's not possible. Sure. The Dowager Countess wonders if they've overlooked some other source of income, and she's wearing a fabulous dress in this scene. Ah, uh, it's true. Such a huge fan of that dress. Yeah. Mary picks up the hint and intimates that they should talk to Mac L about getting the money to save Downton. Mm-hmm. Isabel and McGee are talking and trade euphemisms back and forth until they've established that Isabel is working with prostitutes. A.K.A. Ladies of the Night. A.K.A. Hookers, A.K.A. the world's oldest profession. Right. Uh, uh, the the pages that redirect to it on Wikipedia are prostitute, harlot, strumpet, and the oldest profession. Ooh, strumpet! I wish that. Gosh, let's bring strumpet back. Uh, I'm bringing strumpet back. <laughs> Y'all stupid hookers don't know how to act. <laughs> I like this plan. You go home early. Y'all pick up your slack. And by slack, I mean penis. Whoa. Um, yeah, she is, she's helping prostitutes out in a center in York. And Mackell responds to that by saying, oh, no addresses, please, or Alfred will be making notes. And uh, Alfred actually grins at that. Hey, more personality. That's, He's back at an even plus one. <laughs> that's right. Although I found it like that's a bit of a thing to say to somebody you don't know. But uh, uh, I thought it was great. All right. There's I mean, life in the replacement ginger yet. <laughs> We've also overlooked the fact that Mac L herself is a bit of a replacement ginger. Uh, all Though right. she's clearly coloring her hair. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, Isabel explains that helping prostitutes involves sending them away to rest, to which Macal says, I should think they need it. And this was one of my favorite reactions in the whole episode. I yeah. missed it the first time through, but the mm-hmm. second time, you see Edith like blink really fast a bunch of times <laughs> and then drink her tea because she's like, oh my God. Uh, yeah. That's the funniest <laughs> thing anyone's ever said. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and at the center, they then try to find the prostitute's alternative employment. Pro tip: I think it would be a, would be better to like guarantee them employment. Well, like we're gonna try, but if it doesn't work out, back on your backs, ladies. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, if that's... you're lucky. Have you seen Lamez? <laughs> they they have not. They haven't seen anything good. Yeah, it's true. They ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Baby, they just ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, McGee points out that the war has made a lot of widows and a lot of whores. <laughs> I wonder what old Jane's getting up to. <laughs> it's a fair question. Well, she had child care. She had, like, her mom living with her or whatever. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, assuming her mom is still alive. Yeah. Um... And then Macal asks if they want her to contribute, and McGee says that not every conversation needs to end with her giving money, which was a very good line. Uh, and Macal responds that isn't that what the English expect of rich Americans? And uh, Mary and the Dowager Countess exchange a significant look at that, which uh, is a mistaken significant look, because it should be like, oh, she's already on to us, uh-huh. not like, oh, our plan is already in motion. Like, she's clearly on the lookout for you. Yeah. Uh, Look, they the Crawleys did not find themselves in this position because they were keen. (laughs) 
Lord Grantham speaks for all of us back in the dining room when he asks why Matthew shouldn't benefit from from Reggie Swire's will. Mm-hmm. Preach. Mm-hmm. I am also curious as to why such an obvious solution to their money problems has been floated in the first episode. Like, are they going to drag us out all season? I Like, the whole season is going to be him freaking hemming and hawing still about Mo fucking Lavinia? Yeah. I just, like, no. Let her rest in peace, for, for God's, God's sake. sake. Her and the St. Patrick's Day Massacre. That's right. All right, leave them be. Yeah. She, to say nothing of Reggie Swire, was very clear on her deathbed. Mm-hmm. She said she thought it was better. She was glad to be dying. Yeah. I think it's stupid of her to say that, but she said it. Right. She, she knew yeah. she was dying. She knew she was dying. She wanted him to be happy. Like, and yet he's not. Yeah. So, sorry, Lavinia. You died in vain. <laughs> you deserve better. Yep. But it's like, I don't know. <sighs> I don't think I'm being entirely callous here. Like, I understand that if you were with somebody and then they died, even if you weren't going to, like, marry them or whatever, you right. would have complicated feelings yeah. about that. However... Yeah. It's not... It's not an... Uh, in, un, it's not an inexplicable feeling for him to have. No. Right. And, and But it's it, not... He's like, just making a mountain out of a molehill here. Yeah. He just won't stop. Yeah. What are you, Bates? <laughs> oh no, it's the bait sending of Matthew. <laughs> I just, I'm so frustrated, and I just, I really hope that they wrap up this yeah. financial business and just move on to something else. Yeah. Because. Which, it's generally been a fast moving show. That's true. So, that's you know. true. Okay. We'll see how it plays out. <gasps> yeah. I just had to say that. I know. Had to get it off my chest. <laughs> So, anyway, Matthew stupidly summarizes his dumb reasons for not wanting Lavinia's dad's money. And Lord Grantham stupidly agrees that Matthew should follow his dumb heart. (laughs) And then Anna accidentally walks in on them, and then they go through the dry room. Because she's all like, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were gone. He's like, no, we should be. Yeah. And I was surprised that they talked to each other. Yeah. But I guess it's the 20s now, so. Yeah. All bets are off. Uh, Down in uh, Mrs. Hughes' drawing room, I think it is. Uh, Mrs. Patmore says that Mrs. Hughes has a lump in her breast. No! Yeah, it's uh, it's really. Uh, uh, I was shocked. Yeah, I did not see yeah. this coming at all. No, neither of us did, and it's really like it's very impactful, I yeah. guess. Um, and uh, Mrs. Hughes is just you know looks stricken, and and you know we're immediately just tears in our eyes. I mean, it's. And it's, I mean, Mrs. Hughes uh, is so fantastic and, mm-hmm. and always has been. And as, as an actor, as well as a character, yes. it's, it's, you know, she's, you know, she she really gets you uh, in, involved in the scene. Mrs. Patmore asks what Mrs. Hughes is going to do about it, and she doesn't know. And Mrs. Patmore, you know, is, is taking charge and saying, you know, tomorrow you're going to go see the doctor. And Mrs. Hughes says, well, what if it's, and Mrs. Patmore cuts her off and says, it's better to know now than to wait. Uh, Mrs. Hughes breaks down, and we just can't take it. Phyllis it's, Logan deserves an Emmy for this scene just by itself. I'm sure she's going to be overlooked. And I mean, uh, she'd be in the same category as Maggie Smith, so of course she would never win. Right, but, but she deserves... Well, and probably Shirley MacLaine. Uh, oh, yeah. that'll be yeah. an interesting showdown for the Emmys, if yeah. Shirley MacLaine and uh, Maggie Smith get nominated. Yeah, that's true. Because... 
I mean, I think probably the Academy is still enough of Anglophile. Not the Academy, you know. Right, right. Uh, I think it's still an okay. Academy. Whoever it is that does the Emmys, <laughs> yeah. you know, some hobos under a bridge, I assume. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they still have enough respect for the Brits that, like, mm-hmm. Maggie yeah. Smith would still sh- trump Shirley MacLaine. Yeah, that makes sense. But, like, sense. Shirley MacLaine's got quite the rep over here in the States. That's true. And I still don't really quite understand why. I think it has something to do with terms of endearment. I, I don't know. <laughs> She's Warren Beatty's sister. I've I've I don't think I've ever seen her in anything personally. I so, know. Yeah. I think no. Wait, wait, wait. She was in Steel Magnolia. She plays Miss Weezer. Oh, and I okay. Think that's the only thing I've ever seen her in. Okay, okay. Um, Mrs. Patmore says that Mrs. Hughes never will never need to be alone if she doesn't want to be, and she'll be with her every step of the way. Uh, Nothing's gonna harm you, <laughs> not while I'm. <laughs> And uh, Mrs. Hughes says, but what about the expense? And Mrs. Patmore says, if you have to pay it, better do a doctor than an undertaker. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Which is uh, actually pretty great. It is. That's another great, some more great Irish wisdom from Mrs. Patmore. Yeah. And Mrs. Hughes laughingly says that if that's her bedside manner, she'd rather face it alone. And uh, that's, man. Such a great scene. And, you know, I don't think we give enough credit to Leslie Nickel either. Who You're right. Mrs. Patmore. I think we've probably discussed this before. Probably, yeah. But... Damn. Yeah. Just every time they give her something with stakes to play, mm-hmm. she just nails it. It's true. Every time. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, she's so great. Yeah. It is the following morning, and Anna brings a tray into Eminem's bedroom. Mm-hmm. Matthew says, it's rather shocking for her to have found him ended shibula or something. <laughs> I knew how to say it last night. <laughs> and decibel. Decibel, yeah. Yeah. And these asshats are dropping French all over the place this season. They really are. Like, Early- far, far more than they have in previous seasons. Yeah. Earlier they said pas de vente la domestiques. Yeah. And I don't know. I I tried to look it up, but again, it's hard to find. But I'm curious if Francophilia was more pronounced in the 20s. That's, you know, you know what, It that- probably would be because so many of the men and you know some of the women mm-hmm. had been spending all this time in France yeah. during well, the war. Also, they'd been allies, which, which they had been during the Crimean War, but there was still kind of distrust from the mm-hmm. Napoleon days. Uh, but then in World War I, they were... They would have, you know, they would have felt more fondly. So I would we think. can perhaps confirm this, but for yeah, now, yeah. Uh, believe we will it. just pull it out of our butts like usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Anna says she's made of stout stuff, which I assume makes her the audience surrogate, telling Matthew to get the hell over himself. It's like I'm made of stout stuff, I can see you naked without vomiting. Also, like is that what you're saying? She there with them on their honeymoon? Hasn't she been doing this for like a month? I I genuinely don't know. Maybe like listen. Anna, go off, have fun. We are going on a drug-crazed spree <laughs> for our honeymoon. Maybe that's what he meant when he said his eyes had been opened. <laughs> he was like... I'm, They're like, I've been hearing some great things about this cocaine. It's like, but you don't have a valid, sir. I don't plan on getting dressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh... Anna says she's going to go see Bates, and Mary says to send their best witches, which well, and And Anna says, I can't wait. And I'm like, really? You can't wait? Also, follow-up question, who does your job? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're already short-staffed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anna leaves, and Matthew says he still can't get over how odd it is to be found in Mary's bed. Uh, you know who it was odder for? Mr. Pramut. <laughs> much, much odder for him to be found. I'm pretty sure he was quite surprised. <laughs> Uh, they agree that being in bed together is nice. Matthew says he's going to see Jarvis, 
who I feel like he's mentioned before. It sounds vaguely he's, familiar. Like, I think he's his man of business. I, probably. Uh, and he's going to start house hunting. But Mary thinks that he should spend their last days in Downton at Downton. But he thinks that it would be better to like actually have a house when they get evicted. <laughs> right. Uh, she helpfully reminds him that this is actually all his fault. And then they make out and presumably have sex. Which seems weird considering what they were just talking about. Yeah. Like, I know that I like to have a raucous discussion with you about our checking account <laughs> before we get down to business. I, I can't explain it. <laughs> I think it's some weird role play thing that they're doing. <laughs> I guess so. But yeah, it does, it does just underline the fact that this conflict was apparently resolved without actually resolving it at all like no why, because why they d- keep complaining about it and yet right. they keep then reverting immediately to sort of like mundane domestic yeah. cohabitation it's like did you solve your conflict about the very foundation of your existence no but we just don't care about it anymore well that's yeah. a that's a drug-fueled bender for you <laughs> yeah that'll do it no and I, I actually when i was watching it i was so surprised i was like man they're having sex like a lot but then i was like oh Right. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't before. Oh, right. Yes. I mean, granted, you know, we're unique in that we went on a honeymoon in a place much like Khan in the summer <laughs> where we was, had no air conditioning. It was actually too hot to touch each other. It, it was it was unpleasant. Thank God for frozen pizza and the Aladdin drinking game that we invented. Yes. <laughs> Look, it was awesome. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> We've taken other trips. <laughs> Uh, on a dark and imposing looking street, it is our favorite replacement ginger, <gasps> Ethel. Oh my gosh! Only by default. Well, that's true. But, uh, man, I'm so glad to see... Uh, she can be our favorite ginger strumpet now. That's true. Ooh. But I'm, I'm glad to see just a full She's a on... ginger strump. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, I'm just glad to see a full-on, no doubt, bona fide ginger mm-hmm. on, on the show. It makes me happy. She's uh, she's working the streets now. It is quite clear. She um, still looks pretty clean, though. She does. Like her hair is disheveled, but she seems like yeah, she's holding it down. Yeah, I mean, you know, she had all that practice. You know, she's uh, she's working a fairly nice-looking street. It's a big building that she's standing in front mm-hmm. of, so that's that's got to be a good sign, I right? I feel bad for her and the other girl standing there, though, because like there's this guy he like comes and like gives him the once over, and yeah. just like peace. <laughs> yeah, it was like mm, I don't do gingers. I, that that may have been his thinking. Um, and uh, along comes Isabel. Uh, surprisingly, get ready to be condescended to <laughs> Ethel. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ethel is not ready, so she retreats into the shadows as Isabel passes. Uh, and Isabel caught a glimpse of her, apparently, but then she's off. Edith runs off. So Ethel, yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to everybody's favorite Freudian slip. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Ethel takes off running. We're at Anthony Strallen's house, which is actually pretty sizable and quite nice. So yeah. I say, Edith for Countess, down with Mary. That's <laughs> uh, a nice library that he's, he's in. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, he is trying to politely turn down a dinner invitation from Edith, saying that Mary just got back from her honeymoon. It's her family time. Edith tells him that he is family, but he correctly points out that he, in fact, is not her family. True. Uh, he says he'll come for the big dinner next week, and Edith says that you know she knows he doesn't mean to hurt her. And he's like, no, I don't want to hurt you. And she's like, well, then why are you always pushing me away? Yeah. And he says he doesn't want to, but he's got a bum arm and he's too old. Like that old thing. Right. Like <laughs> that broken Victrola. <laughs> she says he's still got the rest of his life ahead of her. And he's like, oh, I'd like to believe that. And she's like, all right, you don't get to push me away anymore. And you're coming to dinner. Yeah. And she's- I just, 
she's really developed this like backbone of steel. Yeah, she really has. I she, mean, she because she stands up to Mary now. You know, she mm-hmm. she has this whole personality. She does. No, she's really come into her own, and I mean, she can. It's clear that she has a stronger personality than Anthony Strallett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does not have much of one. Yeah. But you know what? I think that that's great for her, like from her perspective, mm-hmm. because in her family, she's always been the dull one. Yeah. And so in this world, she gets to be his charming wife, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. I'm sure she'd throw excellent dinner parties and she'd do everything correctly. Yeah. But yeah. also be able to sort of keep him current. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It, uh, you know, look, I mean, I said long ago that I wanted better for Edith than Anthony Strallen, but... This seems like a good thing. And also, Ant- Anthony Stroud looks better than he, he used to. He does look better than he used yeah. to. <laughs> I think, you know, when they, they realize things are going in this direction yet again this season, they're like, listen, we're sprucing you up. <laughs> and he said, oh, are you going to do something jolly with my hair? <laughs> well, you know, his his crippled arm has been less front and center uh, yeah. in these episodes. Yeah. Down at murder prison. <laughs> Uh, That's a real show, you know. (laughs) (laughs) There's a real show called Murder Prison. There is? Cousin Levi just recommended it to me on Facebook. Oh, my God. All right. Well, uh, down at this fictional murder prison, (laughs) uh, Anna walks in with some other women. Whose husbands are certainly better than (laughs) Like They just have to be. Odds are, yes. Uh, and, And goes to see Bates. He asked how she got on with Vera's book or address book or whatever from the last episode. Uh, she said she had a few replies and two that were returned for bad addresses or nobody at that address. Uh, and they were a Mr. Harlip and a Mrs. Bartlett. I kept thinking it was Mr. Harelip and I kept <laughs> laughing so hard. Yeah. No offense to anybody with a hair lip. Right. It's uh, just a funny word. Uh, Mr. Harlip is a moot point in any case. He was a northern cousin that Vera never saw, but Mrs. Bartlett was apparently good friends with Vera and lived around the corner. Uh, so Anna says that she'll find her. Bates asked about France. Did she, uh... Was Eat a, frog's legs did, and dance the can-can? Right. Which, like, racist. <laughs> which was the style at the time. <laughs> uh, Anna did not do either of these things, but she did buy a garter for her second husband. <laughs> But Bates is actually pretty cute about this. Yeah, like, he's yeah, all like, yeah. oh, if this whole crazy scheme ever works out, maybe I'll see it. Yeah. Of course, yeah. your leg will probably be all wrinkly and varicose veined by then. But <laughs> Yeah. And again, you know, Brendan Coyle, not perfect, but it's mostly the character's fault. Yeah. As opposed to Brendan Coyle's he fault. He really does his best. Yeah. Just blech. Yeah. In Dr. Clarkson's office, uh, he's washing his hands and asking Mrs. Hughes if she has any other symptoms. And she says she's just tired. No more than usual. So he says he'll just conduct a preliminary exam, and Mrs. Patmore asks if she can stay. Mr. Clarkson says that he would prefer it. Yeah. Which is so, like, just medicine at the time is so strange to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. You know, he'd be like, no, you know, right. better if I'm going to be in a room with an unclothed woman, yeah. doctor though I am. Yeah. Yeah. Better to have another lady here making sure there's no right. untowardness right. going on. Yeah, and I think Dr. Clarkson, and I don't remember if I've seen him do this much interaction before, but he has a good manner for a doctor. I really like I, him I, in I would general. be comfortable with Dr. Clarkson as my doctor, mm-hmm. provided he was up to date with current medical knowledge. Yes, it is. But yes, yeah. I, well, I like you him. know, he certainly was pretty dismissive of Lord Grantham's, you know, lack of interest in the female anatomy. <laughs> yes, it's true. Alfred is showing Thomas a spot on Matthew's tailcoat. I think they're in a hall somewhere. And uh, I feel like there's a lot of hall scenes in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Alfred is saying he's tried all the usual things, but he can't shift it. Um, 
What about a tide on the ghost stick? Well, uh, that may be what Thomas offers to show him. <laughs> he says not that he'll uh, not to not to tell anybody else. He doesn't want to give away all his secrets, but he will show him what to do. The Dowager Countess comes in to see Mary, who's in a sitting room of some kind. It's yeah. not the drawing room. I think it's the sitting room that McG is usually in in the mornings. I think you're right. Uh, where they receive guests. Yeah. And so Mary is reading a magazine. Indeed, we couldn't she see is. what kind. It looks like it was a fashion magazine. Indeed really kind of symbolizing the pointlessness of her status in life right sort of sitting there idly paging through a magazine that's just oh how can i convince my husband to take this money so i can continue to listlessly leaf through magazines forever <laughs> which she could do anyway just in a smaller house anyway the dowager countess asks if they're very serious about asking that woman <laughs> that other woman your other grandmother which yeah. was hysterical <laughs> uh and the dowager countess says they have to convince uh Mac-El to give them the money by demonstrating that the house has value and that securing her granddaughter's future is vital mm-hmm. uh they plan to begin sort of laying the groundwork at tea that afternoon and i just it's just so funny because she's like oh you know surely she can see the value in that but it's like there is no value. Right. Like, if this house is not turning a profit, yeah. like, it's just business. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Back in Dr. Clarkson's office, uh, Dr. Clarkson cautions Mrs. Hughes that there are going to be several stages to go through before there's any cause for despair. Uh, he'll draw some fluid from the cyst. If it's clear, then that's the end of that. It's, it's not cancer. Uh, and if it is not clear, he will send it away for analysis. He seems to be reasonably confident, like by no means, you know, certain, but he seems to be leaning a bit towards it, it being all right. Um, but Mrs. Patmore is, is very like, I forget what she says. She says it's very, very unlikely. Uh, right. And Mrs. Hughes says that if Dr. Clarkson isn't going to treat her like a child, she would prefer it if Mrs. Patmore did not either. These are great scenes. They are. The two of them are fantastic together. Yeah. Back in the kitchen. God, how many times are we going to say that this episode? They're down there a lot. Yeah. Daisy asks Alfred if the oven seems slow to him. Uh, how would he know that? Right. Like, he said he was vaguely interested in, in cooking. Yeah. But, well, and, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he says he doesn't think it seems slow, which he's stupid because right. it is. Yeah. Uh, Reed comes in and announces that Macal is heading to the Dower House for tea. She and Alfred share this sort of flirty little glance, and Alfred leaves, and then Reed says to Daisy that she thinks Alfred likes her, and then Daisy says, he's just being friendly. (laughs) But, like, do you really want to trust Daisy on the subject of whether or not a footman fancies you? Yeah. You do not. Somebody (laughs) needs to pull Reed. I mean, Reed is doing fine on her own, but it's like, you really, don't listen to her. Look, Reed knows all. She knows the past. (laughs) She knows the future. (laughs) She's like Professor Marvel. (laughs) In the library, Matthew apparently now has his own busywork desk, um, and he is slaving away at it. I, I think it's just Lord Grantham's desk. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. I thought I felt like it was facing a different direction. But I don't think so. Fair enough. Um, in any case, he is he is working away on on stuff, catching up on stuff from the honeymoon. Probably that hideous pile of posts. Indeed, yeah. Uh, and uh, Mary comes in and asks him if he has heard about the will, and he like dismissively hands her a letter and says that she can read it if she likes. Um, and the, the answer is that he's definitely the, the heir to, <clears throat> he's definitely, <clears throat> he's definitely the heir to the Squire gold, but he 
says that they may need to get a death, certi- a death certificate from the Indian authorities, which could take a while. Mary is pleased because the delay will give him time to change his mind, and he gets all pissy about it, uh, says that it would be false pretenses and he'd be stealing, and he says that her father understands. Why doesn't she? And she says that she doesn't think her father, the papa, does understand. He just doesn't want to beg, um, which I think is... No, I I think it's... It was Lord Grantham is not good at masking his feelings. Yeah. And when yeah. Matthew's told him, he's like, well, all right, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he says that he loves her and she is well aware of that. And just, I don't know. Speaking as a married person, <laughs> if there was something that I wanted like so badly and, you know, just needed it, you know, and then it was right. vital to sort of like achieving my life goals. Yeah. And you had the means to make it happen, even if you didn't, you know, you wouldn't actually, you know, as long as it was right. all legal and like on the up and up and you weren't actually breaking any laws. <laughs> right. I just can't imagine you ever doing this. I agree. But they really don't seem to like each other so much as they used to. I, it's, I guess so. Yeah. By the way, Mary, quite happy to beg. Yeah. No problem oh, yeah. at all. She's, she's a beggar. <laughs> yeah. Down at the Dower House, Mary was on her way out for tea. Mm. And uh, so down there, McGee asks Mac L what her brother Harold is up to. Mac L says he's geeking out over yachts. Yeah. His idée <laughs> More French. Yeah. The Dowager Countess finds it very odd that McGee has a brother because in England, there's no such thing as an heiress with a brother. And, you know, McGee explains inheritance law to Mac L again, which I feel like they've... They've done something out of character for her. I think that Mackel would be well versed, right? In like she, it, British inheritance law, she, she married off her daughter to this guy. Yeah, I think regardless she of whether she thought it was a good idea or not, right. she and her late husband would have, you know, dotted all their eyes and crossed their t's. Yeah. Uh, Harold never comes to Downton, however, because he hates to leave America. <laughs> and the Dowager Countess says, "Oh, I should hate to go there," which. <laughs> You suck at this. Yeah. You are really, really bad about this. Yeah, listen. Her and Mary both, who, you know, are characters that we like in certain ways, but they have they do a terrible job with this particular scheme. They really bungle it. Yeah. And Mary like gives her this look and she's like, uh, hey, we have to ask her for money. Did you forget <laughs> we just talked about this? Yeah. Uh so then the Dowager Countess and Mary says something like, Oh, you know, don't be silly, Granny. We're both so drawn to America. <laughs> right. And the Dowager Countess is like, oh, right. The scheme. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then the Dowager Countess starts talking at her ass about the bond between the Crawleys and the Levinsons never having been stronger. And Miguel's like, oh, you mean how we gave you all that money? <laughs> right. It's like, just like we bailed your asses out and WW2. Only it's before that. <laughs> right. And it wasn't a war. It was yeah. an estate. Yeah. Uh, Mary. Well, and McGee gets like confused. She's like, well, I, I'm glad to hear that if it's true. And I'm like, listen, people, even McGee thinks you're acting weird. Yeah. Like she's, she is the one who's weird. <laughs> yeah. Quit stealing her weird thunder. <laughs> uh, and then Mary asks uh, Mac Ella if she thinks McGee's fortune has been well spent in shoring up an ancient family. And I'm like, how ancient are you? No. Uh, but Mac Ella says, my favorite line in this episode, <laughs> well, you gotta spend it on some... <laughs> she sounds drunk! Yeah. Oh my god, no, but it's so great. Like, this woman just don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. Like, in a way that the Dowager Countess... 
could never dream of not giving a fuck. It's true. It's very important to the Dowager Countess to give all kinds of fucks. Mm-hmm. Well, except when she decides not to because oh, she's a sure. woman and it's her prerogative to change her mind. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, in Matthew's room, Alfred is dressing Matthew. Matthew notices uh, the the former spot on his coat, which is now just a hole. Uh, Matthew, Alfred said this, that there was a mark there. Matthew says, you didn't need to burn it away, which uh, that's a fair criticism. Yeah. Uh, but he says, never mind, just get me my dinner jacket and we'll send it to my tailor in London to mend it. Which again, oh, just send it to my tailor in London. <laughs> like, who's going to pay for your tailor in London if you don't take the swire gold? <laughs> yeah. Also, isn't it possible that there's a tailor somewhere closer than London who's capable of just, you know, mending? Word? Yeah. What about Ripon? Right. Seems like a nice place. They've got a bishop and everything. And besides, he's not even from London. He was in Manchester. Uh, yeah. <sighs> anyway. Clearly, everyone, I have a lot of issues with Matthew, okay? It's just <laughs> something we're working through. It's true. Uh, down in the hallway, Carson finds Mrs. Hughes, who's looking very, you know, peaked after her ordeal. And he says, there aren't any glasses laid for the pudding wine. <laughs> and Mrs. Hughes did not realize they were having a pudding wine. And Carson snarks that he does not make the menus for his own amusement. Uh, and the pudding wine was specifically listed on the menu. Right, right. And basically, he says until he can convince his lordship to get the the staff levels back up to where they need to be, she needs to pull her weight. So he walks away, and then she sighs uh, the biggest sigh ever. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. like, Mrs. Hughes, I just want to hug you in that lump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, upstairs, Mechel says that uh, Newport is less formal than Downton, though it's not a jungle, she points out. Uh, and then, uh, Matthew is wearing his dinner jacket and the Dowager Countess asked why he's wearing play clothes. <laughs> Which is pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he says that he and Alfred had rather a disaster, uh, with the, the hole in his tails, causing Carson to rear up in dismay. He almost drops his serving dish all yeah. over Lord Grantham. To which Lord Grantham replies, steady the buffs, <laughs> which I don't know what that means. I meant to look it up, but I didn't. It was capitalized. Yeah. It had to be something. It had to be something. Uh, and Sir Anthony, who is there, uh, says that he likes a spot of informality. And Edith says, especially when a couple is alone. Awkward. Yeah, that was a bit much, Edith. Yeah, like... Rain it in. You're doing Ad- great. Admire the effort. But you know what? I, you know, hey. as a former awkward person myself, <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine. Yes, uh, Mary chimes in on the side of formality, saying that it's their job to keep tradition, which is why they must keep Downton going. Wink, wink. She says. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mac L does not respond to that. Uh, she asks who's coming to dinner. And Mary says she's glad they're having a dinner party so that she can see the real point of Downton. Yawn. Yeah. Is that really – that's the best you've got? Because mm-hmm. I think it is the best you've got. That doesn't seem, like, worth that much. No. And I mean, you know, from Mackell's perspective, in America, they've got, you know, Newport. So when all the rich people want to get together and have a party, yeah. they just go to Newport. And mm-hmm. when they're done with Newport – they leave. <laughs> yeah. They don't need to worry about the livelihoods of dozens of filthy peasants. <laughs> it's true. Downstairs, Alfred's getting the third degree from Mr. Carson. He doesn't know what to say. O'Brien yeah. swoops in. Yeah. What does she say? She says, I can't remember. I think she just wants to know what's going on. Well, she says something because then Carson says, I'll have none of that vulgarity. Oh, no, no, no. Which- so she asks what's going on. Carson says that Alfred has embarrassed the whole family by sending Matthew to dinner in a dinner jacket, which it's called a dinner jacket. Right. I genuinely don't understand. Yeah, we're confused. Um, 
but she says, uh, oh, well, that's very exciting or something like that. Yeah. And Carson's like, I won't have that kind of vulgarity. And I'm right. like, are you familiar with vulgarity? Yeah, that was there was nothing at all vulgar about that. Well, he's having a hard day. Yeah, that's true. Um, so Anna comes to Alfred's defense and just says, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And then Alfred tattles on Thomas and Thomas throws Alfred under the bus. He's like, I just gave him soda crystals. Yeah. Like, blah, blah, blah. And then he like sits down and looks very like prim yeah and i'm like why don't you just leave the room no no one likes you well i mean you know that's where he drinks his tea uh lord grantham and sir anthony are talking in the library and sir anthony says that if if lord grantham wants him to stay away from edith then he will uh but that she keeps calling on him and he doesn't think he can you know refuse her admittance it's Uh, his house (laughs) right well right but he uh, would feel rude, uh, but he is, however, willing to write to her and ask her to stay away. Uh, and Lord Grantham says that he hopes that they can still be friends after this. That said, they're gonna not see each other for a while, and he's gonna he's gonna make his excuses for the big dinner. And uh, at home, we all say, "Boo, Boo! Team Edith." That's right. God, I still can't. It still feels like this is like some surreal sliding door <laughs> situation. I know it is. Like it, there's a whole nother Downton Abbey series three <laughs> where we're not Team Edith. Yeah. Uh, down in the stores uh, near the laundry stuff, right. Alfred shows O'Brien the bottle that Thomas gave him to clean the jacket. He tells her, you know, this. You know, she's like, these are the soda crystals. He says that's not what he pointed to. He pointed to this one. Yeah. So he shows her. I don't know, hydrofluoric acid or something. Right. Whatever Walter White uses to dissolve all those bodies breaking <laughs> bad. Like, that's what he used. Yeah. Um, and he's like, you know, believe me. And O'Brien's like, no, I totally believe you. And then right. she's like, I'm going to go fix Thomas's wagon. Yeah. And it's like, Alfred doesn't even care. Right. He hasn't <laughs> reacted at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I mean, I know, yes, I'm, I'm sure Thomas did actually sabotage him, but just based on the evidence of that scene, like you're really saying it's not possible that Alfred just did not understand what pointing means. Well, he has been a bit of a clot. <laughs> Thomas, however, evidence of his sabotage is that he is up with Lord Grantham undermining Alfred, saying that he's he's just not ready for, for being a valet. And Lord Grantham says that he thinks Matthew would rather manage on his own, uh, which... You know, we thought he'd gotten over that, but clearly not. And uh, Thomas puts forward the idea of getting Mr. Molesley to come up and and see to Thomas or see to Matthew, which does he just all of a sudden like Molesley or like? I guess so. Just I guess maybe just this unexplained beef he has with O'Brien. Yeah, he just doesn't want anything good for her nephew. Well, and I mean Molesley's put in the years, so which yeah, I mean look, he's obviously a better valet than Alfred. Like that's not a question mm-hmm. but also you know obviously this all happened kind of behind closed doors but it's like matthew specifically doesn't want Molesley. yeah like he made that very clear yeah up in their bedroom mary asks uh how alfred's doing and matthew calls him a clot and yeah. just is really Jesus. unnecessarily jerky about the whole thing it really is and mary says he better get his uh tailcoat back in time for the big dinner and then Matthew is a total jerk when he, you know, calls her out for asking MacL for the money. And she, uh, you know, very appropriately points out that since he could solve the problem himself, like, in a day, she won't take any criticism from him. And she says, now kiss me before I get cross. <laughs> and he eagerly leaps into action. 
So I guess this, this is how they work things out. I guess maybe they're like they're like bonobos. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes a certain amount of sense. They're both finally allowed to have sex. Yeah. So maybe they're just like, uh, let's just keep having sex. <laughs> right. Let's just do that, and then just everything I'm sure else. Everything will... else is gonna fall into place. Yeah. Yeah. In Mrs. Hughes's room, I think Mrs. Hughes and Mrs. Patmore are discussing the the fluid test, and Carson barges his way in and says that Mrs. Hughes needs to get the maids under control because they've broken a serving dish. Those maids do seem pretty unruly. I guess. I'm not sure, like, what it is that, how it's Mrs. Hughes's fault. Well, she's in charge of the maids. Well, I mean, I understand He's that. He's just projecting, Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Mrs. Hughes uh, gets in Carson's face about the, the staffing conditions mm-hmm. and says that until he or Lady Mary gets their head out of the clouds or they get their staff back up, you know, that's... Well, because he says, you know, that... that uh, oh, because she was saying, you know, they're short at least one housemaid if Anna's to be a proper lady's maid. Right, right. As Lady Mary wants it to. And he's like, of course she does. She likes to see things done properly. Yeah. I just always like it when... Uh, Mrs. Hughes lays into Carson about Lady Mary. Yeah. Like, Lady Mary fan though you are, it's right. really oh, satisfying. I can't not argue with that for a second. Uh, and Carson harumphs, I can see that you're overtired, and, and walks out. Which, I mean, you know, this is, they've got to deal with each other. When they get mad at each other, they just, I'm sure you have a very good excuse. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, which is not the worst way to handle it. Uh, and Mrs. Patmore tries to, interrupt and explain what's going on but mrs hughes cuts her off and just says good night mr carson and tells mrs patmore not to tell him mm-hmm. carson informs alfred that mosley will be coming up from the village the next day to see to matthew's needs and that alfred won't need to attend to him anymore uh, carson tells him not to feel badly he's just not as experienced and then o'brien tells alfred that it's thomas's fault and she'll make him sorry yeah and then alfred just kind of goes and hang dogs by the kitchen door, yeah. which is kind of comical because it's just like, <laughs> why did you go sit like like? Yeah, just, it's just yeah, it's just it's a weird... like half a squat. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Reed comes in from the kitchen and tells him that she's on his side and just kisses him mm-hmm. and then walks off. Yeah, uh, he looks pleasantly surprised. Daisy has seen this kiss and stands agape. Yes. Also in this scene, we see a male mystery servant who I'm pretty sure was a hall boy. It's always just... exciting when we glimpse the hall boy. <laughs> yes, indeed. At breakfast, Lord Grantham asks Matthew where Mary is, and he says that she says that since she's a married woman now, she can eat breakfast in bed. Uh, I do that every day. <laughs> Pop-tarts, what, what? Uh, Lord Grantham announces that they're going to get Molesley up to look after Matthew. Carson tries to take this opportunity to point out all the other staffers they need, but Lord Grantham cuts him off. He's like, stop hassling me, yo! More or less. Then Edith, who was handed a letter earlier, drops her silverware. And Lord Grantham turns to her, who, by the way, he handed her the letter and would have seen the address mm-hmm. and known what it was about, turns to her and goes, Edith? And I'm just, what a twat. Mm-hmm. Um, and she runs off, says, she says, Father, how could you? And runs off. Uh, and Matthew's like, uh, what was all that about? Golly. Yeah, he says, golly, that's right. Sybil's infected them all. Yes, and Lord Grantham tells Matthew that he probably knows what that was. Isis deserves better. (laughs) I don't mind saying. Yeah. 
in her sitting room, McGee is doing needlepoint, wearing a lovely blue sort of patterned gown, which I really love, mm-hmm. uh, and distracts me enough from the fact that she's constantly doing all this needlework. It's like, what are you doing with it? Again. What? You don't need anything in this house. <laughs> that room is like filled with pillows. Yeah. I don't know if you've... No- I noticed it more when Mary was in there oh, in yeah. the previous scene. But there's just like pillows upon pillows so it's like she won't stop making them mcgee's pillow factory uh so she's telling mary that she thinks that quite enough of her father's money was wasted on downton and i'm like yes mcgee unlikely voice of reason Mm -hmm. yeah it's shocking mcgee says to mary that uh the levinson shouldn't have to pay for lord grantham's mistake yeah and 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 mary gets all defensive about it she says oh so you're saying this is papa's fault and mcgee retorts well it is not my mother's and it is not my brother's yeah which high five yeah no it's great yeah and i mean you know because it's it's perfect because mcgee knows she kind of has to present this whole united front Mm -hmm. but at the same time she knows damn well whose fault it was Mm -hmm. and you know she is angry about it yeah yeah so she's telling mary you know lots of people live in smaller houses especially after the war they'll just live in a smaller house with a smaller estate and she tells her we don't have to go down the mine which is fantastic (laughs) yeah uh, and then Mary tells her that her lackadaisical attitude just goes to show that McGee is American and Mary is English. Like, again? Yeah. Still? Yeah. Get over Because every time she does that, that's, she that's seems just, like a 13-year-old. She does. I feel like she's been saying that since she was 13. Like, yeah. ever since she first figured out she could say it. Yeah. And, I mean, McGee can't like, really contradict her. My mom, my governess, says that you are not really English, but I am. Anyway, she tells her that in her book... She's going to be the Countess of Grantham. And in her book, the Countess of Grantham lives at Downton Abbey. Yeah, it's like, you might want to proofread that book, yeah. Mary. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, what I will say is the characters of Downton Abbey live in Downton Abbey. You know, this is the other thing about this whole plot line. They're, it's called Downton Abbey. Right. It's like a plot. It's like when they, they would have plot lines in MASH that like the Korean War was going to end. Yeah. And it's like, where's the stakes in that? Yeah. The Korean War is not going to end. In so the, the show's of a ending. Right, yeah. right. In uh, the hooker hostel where... Or the prostitute palace. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, where Isabella's working. Or the strumpet... Salon. Or the strumpet salon. <laughs> yes. Ethel walks in. Uh, Isabel is busy standing over a prostitute who is eating some food rather hungrily and, like, badgering her about getting a job. And, like... I was like, is this really the extent of your help is just sort of leaning over and lecturing people who do not appear to be listening to you at all? That seems like her line. Yeah. That's that's what she's best suited at. This is what makes me angry. And it makes me angry about a lot of sort of, you know, of of charitable work or people Mm -hmm. who are like, oh, I want to do charitable work. Because she's like, oh, you know, we're not just here to give you free food. And I'm like, you know what one thing prostitutes need is? Yeah. Free food. Yeah. That's food that they don't have to have sex for money to buy. Like, yeah. That's... Well, and again, you know, obviously this is a much larger conversation right, about prostitution right. and agency and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, sex work has come a long way, baby, in many <laughs> respects. But at this particular time, I mean, to tell a woman who's a prostitute that there are other options for her... In many I, ways, there were not. Yeah, you better make sure there actually are other options. That's what I was saying before. She's like, we're trying to find... I'm like, you better like have like some feeder opportunities, yeah, you know? Yeah, Like, I understand if you send one and she doesn't do a good job, like, whatever. Right, right. But you've got to have employers who are willing to hire ex-prostitutes. Yeah. 
And, you know, also understand that their main concern is like not dying that day, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. that whether from hunger, whether from abuse, yeah. whether from exposure to the elements, like yeah. they've got other problems. Right. So maybe be a little kinder to them when they wolf down your free food. This is Ben Kelly's corner. I really do want to start that labor union for the international dick workers. <laughs> yeah. I'll show that Isabel Crawley. <laughs> I can be way more condescending than her. <laughs> um, Isabel sees Ethel and says that, you know, if she's looking for help, she's welcome to it. Uh, and Ethel starts to walk off. And then Isabel says that she recognizes her. She's the woman that came in with the baby that time, which I thought was actually a good... Um, Wait, because she doesn't even remember her name. Right. Yeah, I thought that that little I moment was good. I also thought it was interesting because Ethel called her Mrs. Crawley. Mm. But I just assumed that, like, the prostitutes, you know, network, like, they're like, oh, there's this Mrs. Crawley. Oh, you know, yeah, she's yeah. all right, go see Mrs. Crawley kind mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like Vera Drake. R- right, right. Um, I never saw that movie, but I assume. Yeah, that seems a reasonable assumption. But Ethel is not ready to ask for help and runs off, and Isabel just sort of calls after her well ethel says she's not ready to ask and i don't think it's just that she's going to be asking Mm -hmm. for whatever you know the uh strumpet salon has to offer right i think she has a specific request related Mm. to downton probably related to her son well that makes sense yeah so i don't you know i could be wrong it could just be that you know her her pride won't let her go in but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is downton abbey Mm -hmm. at dr clarkson's uh, he comes in and tells Mrs. Hughes that unfortunately there is some blood in the fluid from the cyst and that he will have to send the sample away for analysis. Uh, Mrs. Patmore keeps overreacting <laughs> yeah. by saying, oh my God. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is awesome. <laughs> and Mrs. Hughes tells her to leave the hysterics to her. Yeah. Unfortunately, the analysis is going to take two months. Yeah. So Dr. Clarkson tells Mrs. Hughes, just try and put your feet up and relax. And Mrs. <laughs> Hughes is like, yeah, right. We're servants. Uh, right. And just slightly posted Wardy in England. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know what you've heard. Yeah. But uh, he asks... And this is like, he's just, he's so correct. Mm-hmm. He asked Mrs. Hughes if he would like, if she would like him to speak to McGee right. about this lump. And Mrs. Hughes says, no, she'll handle it herself if she needs to say anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I just really like Dr. Clarkson for that reason. Yeah. I mean, obviously we've had our differences. Right. But. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's been eight years. He's, you know, perhaps learned and grown a bit mm-hmm. about, about his role and and the role of patients and and giving them more control yeah i mean i think that's you know what we've seen since you know his first little arc about that uh dropsy guy Mm -hmm. the erstwhile farmer that's right of the colored lights (laughs) yes under a stately tree on the downton estate which i think we've seen before i think matthew and mary have talked there many times yeah no, I think so, because I at first assumed it was Mary there when I saw the tree. Um, but it is, in fact, Edith. It's a tree for Edith. <laughs> it is. At long last. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but Edith is uh, sobbing into Mackell's lap. Um, Ooh, new spinoff. Grandmama and the girl. <laughs> Edith and Grandmama just gallivant around Newport, New York and get drunk and confused. That, that, uh. They hang out, like, with, uh, the Zigfield Follies girls or whatever and just, they have a grand old time. Yeah, they seem to be well suited for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, LG and Isis have wandered along and, and asks, what's this? Prick. <laughs> As if you didn't know. Yeah. I can't imagine what you're so upset about. 
ISIS is fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's just his barometer. <laughs> right. She got a bit agitated when we had those soldiers living here. But since then, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. But Macal is wholly on Edith's side uh-huh. on this one. Oh, this scene is so great. Yeah. I love this scene. Yeah. She's just saying, you know, he's got a name, he's got a title, he's got money, all the things that you people care about. And uh, he says that, well, that makes me sound rather shallow. And Edith says, you are shallow to be so upset just because he has a withered arm Mm -hmm. or uh, just because he has a crippled arm, which well played Edith. Yep. Uh, she also in this scene says that uh, Sybil gets to marry a chauffeur and he welcomes him into his house. But when she falls in love with a gentleman, mm-hmm. that, you know, she he ends it. And <sighs> it's so good. It's really good. I'm sorry that I'm being so fangirl about it. But this scene, it's well written. It's mm-hmm. well acted. Yeah. It doesn't have any of the dumb plot elements that I hate. Yeah. And Edith knocks it out of the park and says that how can, you know, how when... I forget exactly well, how she, she says, phrases it. You know, how can you deny me when I'm in love with a gentleman and all the young men my age are dead? Yeah. Yeah. Which I can't believe nobody's brought this up before because mm-hmm. they are acting as if she's going to meet someone else. Well, right. And like when, you know, gentlemen were thick on the ground, she wasn't doing so hot. Yeah. Uh, but she, she goes up to him and takes his hand and pleads with him to let Sir Anthony Strallen come to dinner and he says, well, uh, oh, oh, all right. Yeah. Go so, Edith. Like, yeah. Well, and go Mac L because Mac L is so great. Yeah. Yeah. In she, this scene. She, she is. She says, your daughter is sad and lonely. Mm-hmm. And, and it's true. Edith's yeah. always been sad and lonely. Yeah. And the only person who seems to care is Mac L. Yeah. Yeah. Two years ago, I may not have cared. <laughs> or, you know, two two seasons right, to come, right. I may not have cared. Yeah, but, but uh, oh, so great. Yeah, and that's the the funny thing about Lord Grantham is kind of his redeeming feature is how easily he's manipulated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he has all the wrong instincts, but he lets people push him around, yeah. so it really kind of works out. Speaking of redeeming qualities, uh, back at murder prison, Anna has found a forwarding address for Mrs. Bartlett, and Bates insists that Mrs. Bartlett won't see her. You know, if she sees her, she won't see the real Anna Bates, uh, which, I mean, she'll see her. Right. I mean, yeah. I understand that she'd be prejudiced against her from Vera, sure. but also, like, Vera's dead, yeah. and Anna's a perfectly nice person. She's so nice. Uh, anyway, Anna's going to bribe Mrs. Bartlett with the money from letting uh, the house in London. Oh, okay. And Anna's wondering why, if Mrs. Bartlett was there, sort of like around the corner neighbor, and she and Vera hung out all the time, why she would send her a letter saying that she was afraid for her life, mm. versus just going and telling her. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bates suggests, you know, maybe she did both. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Bates then asks Anna how's life at Downton and she breaks the code of the lady's maid. <laughs> yes. But she's like, you're in prison. Right. Uh, and tells him about Lord Grantham's money troubles. And he's like, that makes me sad. He's yeah. like, not much can touch me in here, but that makes me sad. <laughs> and I'm like, you have your priorities so far out of whack. Yeah. Well, and I mean, still, you know, they don't want their financial situation to be the talk of murder prison. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it from so-and-so who heard it from so-and-so who heard it from the wife of a man in murder prison. <laughs> yes. Uh, we then get a shot of Molesley running toward Downton. The, the the music for this scene, I imagine, is entitled Flight of the Molesley. 
Yeah, he doesn't seem like he can run very well. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Mosley breathlessly arrives in Matthew's dressing room and tells him that his tailcoat has not, in fact, arrived on any of the trains that day. Uh, it's clearly the night of the big dinner. Yes. And he can't be seen in his play clothes. But then Matthew's just like, ah, it's cool. I'll just wear a black tie because these things don't matter as much as they once did. And I'm like, you mean they don't matter as much as they mattered last week? <laughs> right. Because apparently they mattered a lot last week. Mm-hmm. I'm like, are you trying to sabotage Mary's dinner? Like... I'm not it's a like, fan of this whole scheme. He's like, well, uh, I fired my last valet for the exact same offense a week ago, but mm-hmm. you're fine. I just... Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I really think that Baron Julian has a personal vendetta against Dan Stevens. Yeah. Because, I mean, even, like, his... I don't have a problem with Dan Stevens' acting. Like, yeah, it's the same yeah. situation as, uh, as with Brendan Coyle. Right, I'm just right. like, why are they making you do this? Yeah. Um, in an upstairs hallway, Reed manifests and... <sighs> <laughs> she, she sees O'Brien walking down the hall with a bundle of shirts under her arm. Manifest. Because <laughs> see, now I keep thinking of her like in that story from like scary stories to tell in the dark or whatever. Okay. Where it's the woman with the ribbon around her neck and her husband's like, why you wear that ribbon all the time? Why you wear that ribbon all the time? She's like, I can't tell you. And he's like, why you wear that ribbon all the time? Why you wear that ribbon all the time? And then finally when she takes it off, her head just falls off. <laughs> that was a great if 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 you ever need to do if we ever decide to do a uh, scary stories to tell in the dark podcast that was an excellent 30 second first entry <laughs> <laughs> i can't see why we would do that i can't either in the dining room mary and the dowager countess approve the very ornate table setting we get a sweeping dolly shot a silverware porn oh, it yeah. is breathtaking mm-hmm. like get out your silver polish boys <laughs> Uh, and they, they plan how to, uh, tackle Mechel after dinner. And Mary mistakes the wish that Mechel won't want to see all this go if it's for her granddaughter for a certainty. Yeah. Uh, I just, and it's funny though, because you really do get the sense, and I think this is down to Michelle Dockery, cause she's like, she, she can't let all this go. Not if it's for her own, for her own granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And it is just, she's so desperate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we see the difference in this, in this, a little plot line, and it's a subtle one, but, you know, this is not the first time the Dowager Countess has seen mm-hmm. Downton in Jeopardy. It is the first time Mary has seen it in Jeopardy in this way, so. Um, I'm just saying, had she married Sir Richard Carlyle, <laughs> none of this would matter. Yeah. Well, she wouldn't be in Downton. She wouldn't, but she'd be living in some awesome estate, and she'd be like, oh, sorry, family. Yeah. <laughs> you can come and stay sometimes. In my awesome house, yeah. maybe she could have bought Downton herself. That's a really good point. Oh. In any case. Well, she wouldn't have been Countess of Grantham. True, true. Uh, who fucking cares? In the kitchen, Daisy tells Mrs. Patmore that the range is smoking. She is the Cassandra of Downton <laughs> in this episode. I'm telling you! <laughs> the oven's not working! It's more like... <laughs> Yes. Gotta get my Daisy back up to snuff. She's a hard one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thomas comes in agitatedly and asks for Alfred, who is in the servants' hall. He accuses Alfred of t- taking Lord Grantham's evening shirts, followed by accusing O'Brien. And O'Brien, she doesn't know nothing about nothing, and is like, are you telling me that he's not even dressed? And suggests that he best uh, get a move on and try to get things Because McGee's already in the drawing room, mm-hmm. waiting. Yeah. Butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. (laughs) 
Uh, up in Lord Grantham's dressing room, Thomas is sputtering about somebody stealing Lord Grantham's shirts. I mean, this is the real problem with Thomas. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he really does not want Lord Grantham to know how much everyone hates him, but he always does this shit where he's like, eh, they just didn't get back at me. And Lord yeah. Grantham's like, why would they do that? And he's like, oh, but, but, but they like jokes. Right. Well, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I'm not sure, given the position he was put in, how I, else he yeah, could have gone. I know. But, well, but yeah. He could have not. I, I yeah. helped Alfred burn a hole in Matthew's tailcoat, but that's just too much. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Lord Grantham uh, tells – he asks them, though. He's like, are you not popular downstairs? And Thomas <laughs> is like, ah. I'm not saying that. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, it's okay. Uh, Brandy? They just keep losing my invitations to parties. It's a mistake. <laughs> So Lord Grantham tells him that if he figures out who stole the shirts to refer him to Lord Grantham, uh, but they need to figure out what he's going to wear to dinner. Yeah. I kind of feel like – I was kind of surprised. I would have thought that Lord Grantham would like put Carson on the case in this case since it was, it does appear to be a robbery. You know, I guess so. Like – you know, I know that the, the you know the claim is it's just a prank are or whatever. You, are but you familiar with a uh, little term called narrative economy? I am. The dinner party is apparently starting because there are cars everywhere. Down in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore has finally accepted that the oven is in fact broken, and there's panic. They don't have anything cooked. Yeah, everything they had planned is raw. Mm-hmm. They they have nothing to serve the guests. Yeah. The Dowager Countess is rather appalled to see both Lord Grantham and Matthew wearing black tie. Lord Grantham says that uh, all his dress shirts seem to have been misplaced. And I do have to, again, ask the question, in what way is the shirt that you were wearing not a dress shirt? That's what I don't understand. Like, how can you not just wear a white tie? Yeah. Wouldn't it be better to kind of not have maybe the right shirt? It's Yeah. I mean, you know, and again, don't know. That I'm, I assume. I mean, I know that the, you know the rules were very strict, and mm-hmm. the you know the the mores of the time were very strict. But you know, if they're going to call attention to it, you think they would try a little harder? Yeah, yeah. In any case, as Dowager Countess notices that uh, Sir Anthony Strallen has shown up, and Lord Grantham blames Mikel for it, so that's great. Well, he says he's going to go, like, give her a piece of his mind. <laughs> and the Dowager Countess is like, no, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Macau walks up to them and comments that Lord Grantham and Matthew are dressed for a barbecue, <laughs> which is great. And uh, Lord Grantham says that he feels like a Chicago bootlegger. <laughs> which is like, the Dowager Countess is like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Um and then McGee runs over to let everybody know that the uh, there is a uh, party emergency that the oven is broken. In some room we can't quite identify. We think we've seen it before. Yeah, uh, yeah. But there's a big fireplace. Everybody joins Mrs. Hughes and Carson. And McAlve just takes over. And she's like, all right, you know, we're not going to send these people home. We're going to do an indoor picnic. She does her own version of bring fruit, bring cheese. <laughs> yeah. She asks Carson to bring fruit, bread, cheese, chicken, ham, anything – Anything edible, right, she says. Right. And, you know, Lord Grantham is like a total sourpuss about it. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah. we can't do that. And they're like, it's going to be fun. Yeah. And McGee chimes in very emphatically mm-hmm. on the side of this. And I think McGee is really empowered having her mother there. Yeah. Like, it really helps her to have, you know, an ally in the house. Mm-hmm. She can really stand Absolutely. up for herself more. Mary, everybody kind of runs off and, and is 
presumably going to tell everybody what's going on. Right, right. And she complains to McGee that this is not what she and her grandmother had planned. And McGee is, uh, she's pretty awesome. She's like, yeah, I hope this ruins your whole stupid plan. Yeah. She's like, I hate this plan. Mm-hmm. I hate this plan more than your father hates you. <laughs> Uh, then <laughs> the Dowager Countess hilariously mistakes Lord Grantham for a waiter. <laughs> yes. Hilarity ensues. That was a little strained. It was. Uh, downstairs, everyone's pitching in with this new plan. Uh, Mrs. Patmore's barking orders to everyone. Which is pretty much SOP. Right. Uh, and Reed is helping out. Alfred says that, uh, it's good of her to lend a hand. She <laughs> says that it, she thinks it's good to do other things sometimes. And, uh, like, uh, he it's, says he says she he knows she does it's the most like distant euphemism i've ever heard uh-huh. like other things uh, hand jobs things. <laughs> business things <laughs> right so daisy's on to them she's she's she knows what's up yeah again not sure why she cares right yeah that's not a, i mean she she didn't does. like alfred yeah but she's she feels very strongly yeah. about this relationship for whatever reason Anna compliments Mosley on his new valet's outfit. Uh, Mrs. Hughes sends Alfred off to the meat larder. Uh, Which is not a euphemism. <laughs> that's true. It's where they keep the meat. Yes. the me- like That's still not the, a euphemism. The eating meat. <laughs> right. <laughs> the food St- meat. Still Okay, there we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and she uh, pauses for a second, at which second Mr. Carson uh, comes in and yells at her for uh, idling or whatever. Mrs. Patmore again tries to tell Carson what's up, but Mrs. Hughes cuts her off. Which I understand what Mrs. Patmore is trying to do, but yeah, well, sometimes I mean, sometimes you just don't want your coworkers knowing about your stuff. Like you, right. like she's and I still think processing it. You I know? think it's one of those things where Mrs. Patmore knows that, but then she sees Mrs. Hughes getting yelled at, and it just makes her so upset that which is understandable. Yeah, yeah. Over at the meat larder, <laughs> Reed sneaks up on Alfred. Or materializes, mm-hmm. yep. apparates. That's right. And she tells him that she can tell him where Lord Grantham's shirts are. Uh, he asks her why she's being so nice to him, and she said she just likes him. He's like, oh, you can just say that? And she's like, yeah, I'm an American, and this is 1920. Uh, are you an American? Her accent is real spotty. It really is. I'm like, you are aware that the show is very popular in America, right? And that we know what Americans sound like. <laughs> yes? Uh Anyway, Alfred actually thought that she was spying on him for Mrs. Levinson, but she informs him that Mrs. Levinson can read all of them like the palm of her hand and Mm -hmm. knows exactly what they're up to. And she says, she won't help, you know. And he's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh, what a terrible servant. (laughs) Just kiss me, you ginger fool. (laughs) And he does. Oh, so many sparks. Five sparks of personality. And that, that kiss was sexy. It was. And I... I'm not attracted to him. Right. Her, sure. Yeah, yeah. Him, no. But, like, he was just, like, so into it. He was like, yeah! Come (laughs) here, you tiny gypsy woman! (laughs) I'll push your face into my face! (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Daisy sees again. I'm like, are you stalking them? I think she's creating her own misery here. (laughs) Yeah, But then she, like, but she, like, backs out like a cartoon. (laughs) She's carrying something, and she's just like, ah! (laughs) Physical contact! (laughs) Uh, upstairs, Mackell is telling people to find anything they want to eat and take it anywhere they want to go. If they've ever wanted to explore Downton, this is their chance. Lord Grantham is talking to a woman who we have not seen before, uh, an 
elderly matron of some kind and he uh, says sort of apologizing for the situation she says oh no i feel like one of those bright young people they write about in the newspapers (laughs) (laughs) we laughed so hard hard. oh my god Yes, that is Lady Manville, we later hear her name. So that, that. Yeah, Carson thanks her, and it's like, are you being sarcastic? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Isabel tells Lord Grantham that, uh, Mackle won't be there forever, but he wonders how much damage she'll do before she goes. Which I don't get. Like, is, what damage is she, is saving the day? Exactly. Damage? You should be thanking her on bended no, knee. No, she's created a really fun thing. You could not possibly have saved this party. No, the formality is falling away, slowly mm-hmm. but surely. And, I mean, come on. This party is going to be so well-received. Everybody's going to talk about it. Other people are going to try to, like, do their own version of it. Mm-hmm. He's just a fool. Yeah. Speaking of fools... <laughs> It is now time for another of our recurring segments. Tom repeats history with our resident history hooker, Tom <laughs> Schneider. <laughs> Thank you. I had to pay you back for last week. Fair enough. That's absolutely fair. What about uh, hobby horse? <laughs> it's basically the same, but it sounds like a delightful toy. It does. Yeah, um, the topic this episode is the bright young people that the papers were writing about. They were, it was a, you know, capitalized bright young people as a, a group of bohemians at the time that, that lived in London. Uh, so sort of the equivalent of, you know, your Rat Pack or like the Beats at one time or uh, really the descendants of the, the, the esthetes mm-hmm. that hung out with Oscar Wilde uh, a generation before. And like the precursors to Rent. <laughs> yes. In many ways. Uh, the, the equivalent in, in America would have been like the Fitzgerald set, mm-hmm. which didn't have exactly a clear name. Well, they were, they the tend- Jazz Age. The Jazz Age or the Lost Generation, mm-hmm. which was sometimes used for them in America. Uh, in, you know, in Britain, the Lost Generation was very specifically, you know, all the dead people. Yeah. Like, you know, it talked about, you know, and the survivors, but it was very much about the tragedies of war rather than just, you know, flappers and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were, uh, named by the tabloids. They were, they were very heavily covered in the tabloids and, and most prominently by, uh, Tom Dryberg, who was one of them, uh, who was actually born, by the way, in Crowborough. Oh. Yeah. Um, he, he tossed the Duke's salad. Uh, he was very, very much gay. Uh, by the way, he, starting in, uh, essentially middle school, he he later described it. Him and his friends would discuss the facts of life with experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, and he met Evelyn Waugh <gasps> at Lansing College. Oh my god! Yeah, which Lansing College would be more of a high school mm-hmm. by in terms of age. Um, but it was a boarding school there. Uh, he was eventually kicked out of Lansing College for making sexual advances to other students who reported him for it. Uh, but he did. Uh, he went back and studied and uh, got himself a scholarship to Christchurch, Oxford. While he was there, he uh, he met a bunch of the other people who would be the bright young things. He met uh, Auden, um, and they as both, in W H. As in W H, they both fell in love with the Wasteland by T S Eliot, and yeah. just like read and talked about it all the time, and it blew their minds. Um, he joined the Communist Party uh, while there, and he uh, he met Alistair Crowley there. <gasps> yeah. Oh God, that guy! Yeah, the occultist who deserves like. A vast amount of coverage on his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, that guy 
crazy. Well, maybe if we get more into what Reed gets up to in her spare time. <laughs> yeah, could be. Uh, Alistair Crawley at one point discussed uh, nominating Dryberg as his successor as world teacher, but uh, then nothing really <laughs> came of that. I love man. Yeah. Uh, he also developed a passionate interest in high Anglicanism or high church Anglicanism, which is basically being everything about Roman Catholicism except allegiance to Rome. Uh, it was very much about, you know, ritual and incense and everything mm-hmm. like that. He, he got very much into that. Uh, doing all these things left him no time whatever to study, so he wound up leaving without a degree. <laughs> a friend of his, Edith Sitwell, uh, again, one of the bright young things, she was uh, very well off and was kind of a patron of a lot of these people, uh, and she got him an interview on the tabloid The Daily Express. Uh, and he wound up working for them writing a column called The Talk of London, uh, assisting writing it. It had existed before he got there. Uh, and it was basically a gossip column. He's he's kind of considered to be the founder of the modern gossip column. Wow. Yeah. He he did – some people criticized him for writing such an essentially trivial uh, column. But he claimed that it was on behalf of the working class and that he was intentionally playing up the idleness and usefulness of the upper classes to help the communist revolution. Can we invite this guy to dinner? He sounds <laughs> amazing. He, he does sound amazing. I, I wound up – basically this whole thing about him uh, Uh because I was so uh, enjoyed reading about him. After the uh, co-writer of the Talk of London left, he went on to have his own column that was entitled These Men Make News. Uh, He was, like I said, he was gay. Most of the men in... uh, Homosexuality was a very big part of the bright young people, Mm -hmm. you know, lifestyle, along with drug use was Mm -hmm. another big one. Many of them did get into heroin, um, and some of them, like, you know, went on to kind of have their lives ruined by it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like in 1957, getting arrested with cocaine and things like mm-hmm. that. Everybody around him was baffled at how he never got in trouble with the law or the press for being gay. It was, you know, still illegal just as it has been for Oscar Wilde. He was like Perez Hilton. <laughs> Although, you know, it's not illegal to be gay now, but. Right. Um, but then it was, and he, he, on a couple occasions, did get close to getting in trouble but he could always bring up like character witnesses and things like that he never never really got in any trouble for it he was well done for him yeah and it wasn't he was um he uh consorted with working class people Mm -hmm. he did not have you know most of the bright young people that were gay were having affairs with each other Mm -hmm. he was not he he liked it rough that's awesome that's that's how we liked it he was, you know, the the one time that he came closest to getting in trouble was after an encounter with two Scotsmen that he spent the night with. <laughs> you like it rough, laddie? <laughs> yeah. Have um, some haggis. <laughs> put hair on your balls. <laughs> that was a terrible Scottish accent, it everyone. It certainly was. It's as bad as Reed's American accent. <laughs> it was, but uh, you're not getting paid. Um <laughs> He, uh, yeah, and, and that was him. He, he kept his column going for a while. Uh, one of the things in his column he announced was conversion to Catholicism. Oh, wow. Uh, which was kind of a controversial thing, and that's, that's where the news broke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, Evelyn Waz is the most prominent member of the Bright Young People. Uh, I didn't really say much about him. Well, in which I think I may have mentioned last week, or maybe I didn't, but I just read Brideshead Revisited, right. which is not strictly edwardian at all Mm -hmm. but it is fantastic if you like edwardian fiction if you like sort of interesting stories about you know british nobility and that whole thing 
I loved it. Yeah. I, I liked it much more than you did, I think. I think that's true. Uh, Although but, I should go back and read it again. I mean, but, I would yeah. easily put it in like my top 10 favorite books I've ever read. I okay. thought it was fantastic. All right. A few of the other notable ones uh, that I found interesting things about. Uh, one was Stephen Tennant, considered by some to be the brightest of the bright young people. Uh, he is one of the inspirations for Sebastian in Brideset Revisited. Ah, okay. Yeah. And he, uh, according to a possibly apocryphal statement, spent most of his life in bed. <laughs> uh, uh, including one uh, long-term relationship with the poet Siegfried Sassoon. Oh, I thought you meant sleeping. <laughs> I was like, that sounds great. No, I do not mean sleeping. His let- eyes had been opened. <laughs> I do not mean sleeping. And let me tell you what. Look him up on Wikipedia, see the picture of him that is on his article, and you will understand why he had no shortage of partners. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn. Ladies, get out <laughs> your silver polish. <laughs> and gentlemen. Yeah. Mainly all. gentlemen. I, yeah. Actually, now that, that I think about that it. That would have been his preference. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's too late now. <laughs> yeah. We can do what we want with this picture. That's right. Uh, his picture was taken by Cecil Beaton, a photographer who became very prominent, and I would... Just from what I was saying, I would say that most people have seen a picture by him, whether or not they know it. Uh, a picture of Winston Churchill that he took is very well known and, and some others like that. Uh, but he got his start being a member of the Bright Young Things and taking pictures of them. And also in 1970, named to the International Best Dressed List Hall of Fame. Oh my. Yeah. That's just a <laughs> random fact about well him. Well done, Mr. B. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and and like I say, most of the men involved were uh, gay, and most of the women involved had unrequited uh, crushes on one or more Aww, of the gay members. They were fag hags. They were. They in fact were. However, you know, it would seem that many of them, uh, you know, managed to to do all right by themselves. One, uh, Daphne Fielding. She wrote her memoirs later in life, and Evelyn Waugh said about them that he had read her memoirs and was surprised that she had been very discreet and non-controversial. He Mm -hmm. said, the child part is all right, but the adult part is rather as though Lord Montgomery were to write his life and omit to mention that he had ever served in the army. (laughs) Um. So, yeah. So she was a slut? She was a slut, yes. Good for you, Daphne Fielding. (laughs) That is what Evelyn Waugh was saying. Uh, so yeah, those were a few of the bright young people. If if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it may well be for the same reason it sounded familiar to us, which is that uh, Stephen Fry made a movie called Bright Young Things about this generation uh, based on an Evelyn Waugh novel called Vile Bodies. Which I both want to read and, you know, possibly cover this movie in hiatus. So we'll yeah. put that on the old back burner. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you. That was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm I genuinely want to like research that in my own spare time now. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tom. You're welcome. Back to the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back at the indoor picnic at Downton Abbey, someone is playing the piano and Macal leaves everyone in song and it's all about how she's in love with you. Yeah. And so she comes over to the Dowager Countess who looks so depressed. Yeah. And she starts singing that she's in love with her. Yeah. And like kisses her hand and there's like... It there is, is it is sexually charged. It is steamy. Like I don't understand like, why. Like and Mary, take some notes. <laughs> yeah, because like even as well, like the Dowager Countess isn't quite sure what to make of it. Right. But like Shirley MacLaine has turned on all the sweet charity charm. Man. Yeah. Like she cl- she really seemed to be making a move on her. Yeah. Like wow. Yeah, it was crazy. So fire up the fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Mrs. Hughes asks if there's anything left over for the servants to eat, and uh, Mrs. Patmore says yes. She's kept a veal and egg pie hidden, which... Gross. <laughs> like... Uh, I cannot think of a pie I'd want to eat. I would rather eat mincemeat. Yeah. I'd rather eat a chess pie. <laughs> and Kelly doesn't like that. I don't like chess pie. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore expresses her wish that uh, Mrs. Hughes would let her tell Mr. Carson about the lump. Uh, but Mrs. Hughes says she doesn't want to be sick, seen as a sick woman or a dying woman in two months and starts crying again. <sighs> yeah. And uh, Mrs. Patmore says that, you know, she knows it will be all right. And Mrs. Hughes says, you know, no, you don't. But she thanks her for the sentiment. And we're crying again because yeah. it's true. Yeah. Oh, I really hope Mrs. Hughes is okay. I hope so, too, man. Back upstairs, the people who, well, they are kind of making life or death decisions <laughs> in a different respect. Mm. Sir Anthony is talking with Edith and he asks if she's sure she won't wake up in 10 years wondering why she's tied to a crippled old codger. <laughs> and she ribs him and says that, you know, she will think that if he keeps saying things uh, to that effect. Yeah. And he asks if she knows how much she means to him and says she's given him back his life. And I mean, he does look way better than he did yeah. when last we saw him. Yeah. Uh, and she kisses him very sweetly on the yeah. cheek. And he asks if she, you know, is sure she doesn't want to wait. She says, basically, it's become clear at this point. They never say it, but they're talking about their wedding. Right, right. So she says that they'll organize their wedding in a month. And he says he'll come back in the morning to talk to her father about it. Mm -hmm. And Edith is so happy. Yeah. And we're so happy. It's true. Oh. The subtitle says, sighs happily. And, and yeah. She's earned it, man. She has. She, she drove that tractor. She nursed <laughs> those men. She did. And she she did this herself. This was her accomplishment. Yep. Yeah. Daisy is talking to Alfred somewhere downstairs, asking why he likes that American girl. And he's like, who told you I like her? Because he's an idiot. And uh, <laughs> It reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons for Mr. Burns' dating Mrs. Bouvier. And she says, oh, Monty, you're the devil himself. And he says, who told you? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, why do you like her? Did she give you some kind of a potion or something? <laughs> but No, it was more a cloud. A cloud of dust. <laughs> um, but yes, he admits that he does like her. And Daisy asks if why doesn't he care that she's fast or that uh, he'll never see her again after Ooh, she leaves. Oh, Daisy, I would have made your head spin back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does clarify Daisy's position a little bit. Like, you know, she was raised with a very simplistic attitude towards mm -hmm. it and she doesn't have another way to, to, to process it. Um, but he says that Reed makes me feel good about myself and that's all I care about. Um, which, yeah, that seems like a good plan. Um, well, I mean, it's understandable. Nobody else yeah. is being motivated by feeling good about themselves in this house. <laughs> well, and she's the only one who's going to do it. I'm not going to make him feel good about himself. No. I think he sucks. He looks like a foot. <laughs> um, uh, Carson comes in to ask Alfred to pour claret, and Alfred's like, but the, the, you know, the everywhere it'll spill and ruin things. And Carson says, if you ask me, we're staring into the chaos of Gomorrah. He uh, notably did not mention Sodom. Yes. Presumably like, because he'd been reading stories about these bright young people. <laughs> right. Well, I like how once sodomy became the term, everybody came to this conclusion that in Sodom, they were just having gay sex. And in Gomorrah, they were doing everything else. <laughs> and everything else was fine. <laughs> but Sodom, we can't talk about Sodom. Right. Right. 
that just that that was how they divided up the evil. They're like, yeah. okay, Sodom, you handle the gay sex. We're going to do all the robbing and killing and lying. That's all on Gomorrah. And Sodom was like, woo, put on Madonna. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in any case, uh, Carson asks what Alfred is carrying, and he says it's something to take upstairs for his lordship. It's it's the shirts. It's the shirts. Yeah. Macel up in the uh, I guess it's hard to say. If, I don't think they are in the drawing room because they're all kind of spread out everywhere. Yeah, yeah. But she tells Mary and the Dowager Countess that she'll help in any way she can, and the Dowager Countess starts pontificating about how their family owes their survival to the Levinsons not once but twice. Now who's mistaking a wish for a certain? Uh, L says that they've misunderstood her. She cannot save Downton. Uh, her husband, much like the late Lord Grantham, also <laughs> tied his money down pretty tight, uh, feeling that the Crawleys had had quite enough of his fortune. And you know what? Good on him. Yeah. I think that was really smart. They have had quite enough. And she says she can entertain them in New York and Newport, and she can give extra money for McGee's dress allowance. <laughs> And Mechel tells Mary, like, you don't want this old house. It's from another age. And, you know, you ought to be relieved yeah. that you can move to a different place and start over. Mary clearly does not feel this way. <laughs> no. And Mechel observes, apropos of nothing, that her own and the Dowager Countess's husbands tied the money up tight before they were taken. And the Dowager Countess gets off what actually might be my favorite line. I still like the thing about you got to spend it on something. But it's yeah, just yeah. like this very poignant moment where yeah. she says... My husband wasn't taken. He died. Yeah. And it was just this little flash of the relationship between the two of them uh-huh. back when he was alive. And it was really, really impressive. Like, in just that one line, you just got this really... Yeah. No, it was just incredible. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to mention about this part, mm-hmm. maybe the reason for the entailment was that Lord Grantham knew that his family was shit. <laughs> yeah. At- <laughs> At uh, although I guess not really because yeah, he, yeah, he thought still... that Patrick was going to inherit or yeah. whatever. But good lord, yeah. Well, I'd also say, you know, I like Mikael Fine in this episode, and, and I'm basically on her side. She didn't, she didn't have to tease them like that. No, come on, she did not. Don't be a dick about it. Although they've been pretty that's, dickish that's to her. A fair point. The entire time that she's been there. Now that I think about it, I take that back. So we're all even then. <laughs> yes. Uh, back at prison. Murder prison. That's right. Bates sees his cellmate palming some cash from a guard, and Bates sees him doing it. What was his cellmate buying? Was it a shank? I hope it was a shank. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Be a shank. Be a shank. Shank. Bates. Shank. Bates. Shank. Bates. Downstairs in the servants' hall, O'Brien is bitching about having to have scrap sandwich for dinner since they've used up basically everything edible (laughs) to have this party. And Anna assures her that Mrs. Patmore has has set something by. She cleverly does not tell her it's a veal and egg pie because O'Brien would probably just start punching everyone. (laughs) Thomas comes in in a rage and asks who put the shirts back. Uh, no one fesses up and he starts threatening everybody. And uh, O'Brien just basically tells him off and it makes the maids giggle. Yeah. It, it, that's always fun. It's happened like three or four yeah. times in the course of the series when the mystery maids all start giggling about something. And Alfred just like pretends that he doesn't know anything about it. And yeah. But Which Reed... Actually, well, look, Alfred does a great job, but Reed's all giggling. Like, oh, remember when we did that thing? Yeah. Um, well, and I will say congratulations to Alfred because he was not involved at the beginning of the plot. I assume because O'Brien didn't trust him 
to be part of it. Yeah. Which I, you know, she wasn't wrong on spec, but he does, he does handle himself in oh, this case. Oh, he's a uh, worthy candidate as scheming partner number two. Right. Indeed. In murder prison in Bates's cell, uh, Bates's cellmate says that Bates didn't see nothing. Uh, <laughs> to which Bates says, I agree. Bates's cellmate then foolishly goes on to say, because if you did, I'll cut you. Uh, Yay! Shake! Shake! <laughs> shake! Shake! To which Bates stands up, walks close to him, and then quickly punches him and throws him up against the wall and puts his hand on his neck. Yeah. Like that. He looks like he's about, like he's in choking position. Yeah, like, so I, I, Bates did play that well, I have to say. Um, and the cellmate's like, oh, I forgot my cellmate was a murderer. And Bates says, don't forget it again. <gasps> He killed he Vera. Totally killed he, Vera. Totally killed he totally killed her. He totally killed her. I'm so much more excited about this plot than I have been. Uh, yeah. Despite the fact that it means tragedy and ruin for my beloved Anna. Yeah. Although maybe she'll be able to get a divorce. Yeah. I don't know. I can only imagine the judge would be like, so you didn't want to marry to divorce him before. <laughs> right. Now all of a sudden you do. Well, I sort of, you know, with the whichever cousin it was of ours that suggested that he gets out and then tells her that he did it. Because Anna would be... It's like the end of the sixth sense. Yeah. Well, I think Anna would be fine with that. She's like, well, in Shh. retrospect, it seems to have worked out. Yeah. You know, I never liked her. You never liked That's her. actually a good point. <laughs> but Bates is just so vicious in this yeah. scene. Yeah. This is some of the finest acting that we've seen from Brendan Coyle. Yeah. He just turns on a dime and yeah. just yeah no he annihilates this dude yeah so like if we're about to we maybe maybe we're gonna get some oz action here yeah you know could be little uh little at a bc mm-hmm. a little very pale at a bc <laughs> yeah. but i'm i'm suddenly much more invested in this plot yeah absolutely not so much in the blue filters on all the shots but <laughs> well that's what prison looks like kelly <laughs> Everybody has to wear uh, blue glasses like they're in the land of merry old Oz. That's right. In the library, Lord Grantham comes in to pour himself a drink because he's clearly an alcoholic. (laughs) And Mechel is actually already in there. And she tells him that that evening made her homesick for America and she needs to go home. Or is it that it rekindled her romantical feelings for the Dowager (laughs) Countess? And she knows no one can handle that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway, he offers her a whiskey and she uh, accepts it and tells him no water, which actually does make a bit of an impression on him. Because he's like, oh, I don't suppose you want a whiskey. He's like, this is my drinking alone time. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, she apologizes to him because she can't keep Downton afloat as Mary wanted. Yeah. Well, and she... He, she says something about how that you know that they had been trying to get that or whatever, and and uh, Lord Grantham is like, oh, I thought there was something. Like you did not think there was something, you simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> he and McChee are well matched. <laughs> yeah, but you know she kind of gives him a lecture on how the way to deal with the world now is to not ignore it. You only get hurt if you do that. And she says, you know, you have to adapt to adapt. And he yeah. says he feels like an animal who's who's being cast out of his natural habitat. Mm-hmm. And she says, well, you got to just deal with it. Evolve he, or go extinct. But he thinks that evolution is something that you're born with or not. And he doesn't think that he's been born with the capacity to change. Yeah. And quite frankly, from yeah. what we've seen so far, yeah. that might be the most self-aware thing he's ever said. Yeah, very possible. Downstairs in Mrs. Hughes's room, Carson asks Mrs. Hughes if everything is, if everything is all right. He passes on the thanks from Lord Grantham that the kitchen had performed well in trying circumstances. They have a little conversation about how 
you know, where's the style? Where's the show? He says, and she says, well, perhaps people are tired of style and show. And he says, well, to misquote Dr. Johnson, if you're tired of style, you are tired of life. Um, They're back to the old Carson and Mrs. H we love. Yeah, it's true. And he he says uh, about how, he, you know, he knows that he has been crabby, crabby lately, um, you know, but but really wants... Uh, to know if she's all right and and everything and that she would say something if something was wrong, and she says you know she wouldn't and he he goes off, but it's a very nice scene mm-hmm. and it it's so nice to see Carson being you know good and you know because he can well be, and somebody that we like again yeah absolutely this this is much much better and this is how we want to see the two it of them it seems like they're finding the heart of the show again and mm-hmm. and the the. The reasons that we keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then Mrs. Hughes goes out into the hallway where Mrs. Patmore is there and she says, you know, are, are you sure, you know, that you don't want to tell Mr. Carson? Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Hughes, in another fantastic scene, yeah. you know, she's turning out all the lamps and she's saying, what would I tell him anyway? That someday I'm going to die. We're all going to die someday. The important thing is to keep these things in proportion and I think I can do that now. Yeah. So Mrs. Hughes has dealt with you know, this thing is going on, but she's like, life has to keep going on living. Mm-hmm. And it's just a beautiful point to end the episode. Yeah. It may be the best final scene of an episode in yeah. the run of the show. Absolutely. Just they're, you know, they're framed in the hallway. She's turning off the lights and getting yeah, farther away from the static camera. And, photographed beautifully. Yeah. And it's so very much the essence of that character. You yeah. know, she's the one who turns the lamps out. Yeah. Yeah. Aww, I just love her so much. Yeah. And that's the episode. It is. Episode two. We mm-hmm. are just thrilled. We oh really. Oh my God. We were we went, really worried. Yeah. We were really so worried. Yeah. And, that it was going to suck. Yeah. And we went back immediately after we recorded the, the first episode podcast. We went and watched the second episode. And just all throughout, we were like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank God. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. But it really turned things around. And I, I sort of wonder to what extent. I wonder how it would have been differently if we'd seen the two together, like, you know... Um, I think Americans. we probably would have been a bit more patient. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that. true. Yeah. But this you know, is well, how we're doing it. Yeah. I mean, they don't expect people to watch it quite as closely as we do. Or as often. Yeah. Uh, but it is now time for everybody's favorite thing. That's right. The Abbey Award. Hooray! First up, we have Best Evasion. Uh, we've decided to go with Mrs. Hughes for evading telling Carson about her breast lump situation. Yeah, it's true. And really anyone apart from Mrs. Patmore. She kept a tight lid on it. Yeah, she did. In and very trying circumstances. Yeah, well done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Edith Edith did great work today, but it wasn't even evading. It was confronting. She was confronting. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mary and Matthew continue to evade. The, but like, that's so much of an evasion. It's not even fun. Yeah. We don't even like it. Yeah. It. Shut up. <laughs> uh, the, the one uh, other, I think Edith still doesn't know that they're going to lose the estate. By the way, oh my god, I think yeah. you're right. I um, mean, it doesn't matter. She's going to marry Anthony Strallen and have gobs of money. Yeah, I hope he does not stay down. If that's uh, what happens, I'm going to be so mad. Well, we'll see. The one other uh, good evasion in this episode was Mackel. Uh, mm-hmm. evading the request for money. Uh, well, and O'Brien evaded getting caught for the shirt. Oh, uh, that's true. That's true. But we still got to go with the sentimental choice. Oh, yeah. We we couldn't let Mrs. Hughes not get an award no. on this episode. It was just, you know, she may not get an Emmy, but right. she's got the Abbey for best evasion. <laughs> that's right. So Phyllis Logan, congratulations. <laughs> you can take that to the bank. 
They won't give you a dime. <laughs> right. They'll be confused, but there you are. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got best overbite. Uh, and I think this was also an easy choice. Lady Manville. Oh, man. Sewed it up. Yeah. That was one of our favorite lines. We laughed so hard. It was, yeah. I think I said that before verbatim. But yeah. Just, oh my God. We couldn't stop. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. So well done there. Gibson girl for this episode goes to McGee primarily for that delightful uh, frock she was wearing when she was embroidering. Mm-hmm. I also really liked the the sort of it was kind of peach but on the pink side mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. the big dinner party. Yeah. Uh, I was just very pleased with her clothes. Yeah. And I mean everything looks better with backbone. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, then on the other side of the coin, we have the Fashion Backward Award for Backward Fashion, aka the Backy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're gonna go with Isabel. Oh my on god, this one. she was not in this episode very much, right? But when she but was, her presence was felt. <laughs> the first dinner scene, she's wearing this thing that looks like it has like pinwheels on it or something. It did look that way. It was like it, they were like right over her boobs. They were. It sort it of was looked so like, unflattering. It looked like a like a modern deconstruction of overalls through the prism of an Edwardian dress, <laughs> which is not a good idea. No, not yeah. at all. Uh, and then finally, we have the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. We're going to go with the full five on this one, people. We are. Despite not really liking her arc in this episode, um, she, she had great lines, first of all. You know, the one that we discussed about her late husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and just she handled the arc she was given very well. Well, and just look, she was being very dowager counter. Like, how else is she supposed to handle this? Right, right. And, you know, we didn't like the plan. Yeah. But she also, she got some great quips. She mm-hmm. had some great pragmatic advice in there. She did. It's everything we've come to expect and love from Maggie Smith. Yeah. I mean, she came looking out looking way better than Mary did. And that. her clothes were phenomenal this episode. Mm-hmm. When I was deciding Gibson Girl, it was down to her and McGee. Mm-hmm. And um, she was wearing this fantastic dress. Yeah. I can't remember which dinner it was i don't think it was was it the big dinner she did look great at the big dinner she had a tr and everything right 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 yeah but she just uh she really knocked it out of the park so a real return to form yes in this episode all around yes for maggie smith and for the show as a absolutely whole. except yeah. for matthew who continues well we have there isn't an episode we haven't had criticisms of the point is that this one had the scene this was recognizable as downton abbey yeah yeah. Yeah. So we're very, very grateful for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, sticking it out with us here. We thought maybe this would be a shorter episode. It's, it'll be a little bit shorter. It'll be a little shorter, but it was a very plot-dense episode. It was, yeah. When you have all that dithering in the first one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So we'll see you back next week. We'll be doing uh, episode three. That's correct. Looking forward to that. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs. downstairs. Luncheon out. <laughs>